Hello and welcome back to God's Own Scale podcast, where size doesn't matter, it's what you do with it that counts. God's Own Scale is sponsored by Coat Arms Paints, from whom no matter your style, they have just what you need. Apologies for the delay in this episode, Uh, it's been partly due to procrastination on my part, but God's Own Scale Towers has been hosting a contingent of the German Olympic cribbage team as part of their worldwide tour of Shropshire. Fortunately they've now returned home and uh, God's Own Scale Towers is returning to normal. Uh, Easter has also eaten up most of my spare time with daddy taxi duties and with the current price of fuel has forced me into a state of penury. But enough of the excuses, episode 46 is here, and it's a bit different. Today I talk to wargamer and author of over 40 books, Andy Rawson. I say different because Andy has a slightly different view of the hobby and where it is at the moment, and during the interview he gives us his take on both his own gaming, thoughts on rules, plus in his opinion where the hobby is at the moment and the state of things and where it might be going. It's quite an interesting chat. In hobby news, Bacchus have released some lovely looking Scythemen, principally for the Monmouth Rebellion. Now I know little about this period, but I am familiar with the concept of angry men waving farming implements during that era, and they do look lovely. I do wonder how many projects have started with a single release like this. Check out the Bacchus website for details. From a company I've not come across before called Spinny World, there's a rather charming Eastern European looking modern tractor in 6mm. Quite wide just at this moment in time. Inspiration has struck to make an Eastern European looking tractor, I can't guess. But it does look very nice, so check out their website for all sorts of little bits and pieces I suspect you didn't know you needed. Scotia Grendel continue with their release schedule with some very nice looking 1300th World War II Soviet landing craft. They look to be very crisp little models and they should paint up well. And Brigade models have released a lovely set of buildings for modern futuristic games consisting of a deep ocean research centre. And this is in response to I think customers of theirs saying, why are all your futuristic buildings set in a desert setting? So uh, this set has been released, and it does remind me of something like a floating James Bond villain's lair. and can imagine all sorts of scenarios being played out on it. A link will be in the show notes. Big news in the rules market. Friend of the show and previous guest, Mark Backhouse, has now seen his efforts come to fruition and strength and honour have been released. His Grand Tactical Ancient Rules, published through Ricewitz Press, part of Two Fat Lardies, and judging by my social media inboxes, just about everyone I know has got a copy, apart from me. I've yet to pick mine up, but hopefully we'll sort that out at Partizan in May, I think it's the 22nd of May. The book looks magnificent and I'm pretty sure they're already a roaring success. So well done to Mark for having the vision to do something a little bit different within a crowded Ancients market. I expect to see quite a few Strength and Honour games at shows up and down the country over the next few months. As some of you may have noticed across my various social medias, I'm on a bit of a 10 mil kick at the moment. 
And I can blame entirely my friends at Little Wars TV for this. Their AWI videos plus Greg's excellent painting video caused me to dig out some Pendragon World War II figures that I've had lying around for a couple of years. Plus, uh, seen me investing in some new figures in the shape of uh, Spanish Civil War and some AWI. Yes, I know I've just painted over a thousand Bacchus AWI, but I couldn't resist having seen the Little Wars TV guys' efforts. On the back of that, I'm happy to announce that due to some high-level discussions way above my pay grade, that God's Own Scale now has an official association with Pendragon, and Leon has agreed to return to the podcast to talk about what the rest of the year looks like, uh, and even into next year, for the world of 10 mil. I've no fear, my 6 mil projects continue, more of which at the end of the show, and my love of all things Bacchus is unaffected. The Joe 6 is actually only three months away, and there are plans for something rather special there, more of which later. But there's always room for 10 mil on the podcast, and it's great that Leon has agreed to be associated with us, so thank you for that, Leon. What this means is that I'll be discussing Pendragon releases a bit more, similar to what I do with Bacchus already, just as my chosen manufacturer of little lead men, and I'll be promoting their ranges whenever they're announced. It also means I may be talking to other 10 or 12 mil manufacturers in the future, as well as gamers who specialise in the scale. The aim, as always, is to give a voice to the smaller scales, so 10 mil and below, and to spread the word, hopefully not just to the converted, but to a wider audience. Blimey, that went on a bit longer than intended. You're not here to listen to me waffling on. You're here for the main act. Let's talk about six. Okay, I have with me today uh, author and wargamer, Mr. Andy Rawson. How are you, Andy? I'm fine, thank you very much. How are you? I'm I'm oh, I always say I'm better now that we're actually talking because you've, you've had a busy week. Well, it's it's not unusual that the, the scheduling goes awry. <laughs> so I do thank you for your patience. That's fine. I did believe you. I mean we met at uh, Hammerhead, didn't we? Um we did about that, a month yes. ago when we that was good to have a meet up. So um and we know who we're speaking to rather than just random people from around the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes, it could be anybody random from around the world. But uh, yes, it was it was good to chat, wasn't it, at Hammerhead? I thought Hammerhead was a, good, a great success from, well, from the organisers' point of view. They've said it was the largest footfall they've had uh, for a Hammerhead show. It, it looked very busy, um, both halls, and there was lots of variation, lots of tables. Um, there seem to be um, plenty of people buying things. It's always nice to be able to buy things after you've had them in your hand and looked at them rather than just pressing the button on the internet, I find. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I agree. I do agree with you. Uh, but obviously the pandemic put us into that situation where oh, absolutely, we're, yeah. Yeah. anything was only a click away and it didn't matter what time of day it was. It could be three in the morning or three in the afternoon. Yeah, there's nothing worse than... Um, Alcohol and internet, internet buying. Well, and then, but, and then buyers regret. 
<laughs> in the morning. Yeah, what was that? And the thing is, I don't think I ever bought any wargaming things off the internet before the pandemic. I was one that liked to go to my local, my my um, local game shop or. I used to, as we always did in the old days, uh, wait for the show to come along and see what manufacturers had brought out. It was all, that was a part of the interest of going to shows back in the day, seeing what people, seeing things in you know on the table or, or, or actually in your hands. Yeah, that that was a that's a really interesting point because um, the the whole issue around shows has been raised in various corners where um, it would be the only opportunity to see models in the flesh because you'd wait for once a month for the magazine to come out and and you could see the odd photograph if you were lucky yeah unless um obviously you went to a club where somebody had bought them and you got your hands on them that way but yeah usually and it was um like springtime you know the show it was like what's over the winter manufacturers seem to be cooking up things after they've got christmas out of the way and then they start cooking up new things for the for the spring shows yeah, and, but I, and I feel like a little bit that excitement has gone now because you can see everything instantly now, can't you, on the internet? So it's very rare that you go to a show and there's something brand new. That's right, and we can see it either as photographs or film, you know, through the likes of YouTube unboxing, you know. Blimey. So, I mean, my history started... Uh, I mean, what we're talking about with shows there takes me to... Um, it was about 1977 when I started playing with airfix soldiers on my friend's kitchen table. You actually met my friend, at, uh, Carl, at Hammerhead. Um, he was with us briefly. Um, and we, we we met at school. We both... Uh, I think we both dabbled with um, toy soldiers, you know, the boxes of airfix figures. But um, what we used to do was... As I, I'm, I'm repeating here what probably everybody of my elderly age and years did was back in the day we used to go to the library every three weeks and pick up whatever books we could, things like uh, Donald Featherston, Charles Grant, Tony Bath, Paddy Griffin, anything that sort of, take, take them home and um, try and do what those guys were doing in those books. And we were doing it on kitchen tables with boxes of airfix figures. And then as time went on, I was about, that was when I was about 13, when I got to about 15, I joined a little group called, um, a wargaming group, which wasn't far from where I live, called the Sheffield Nomads. And that folded after a time, but it folded into the Sheffield University Club. And that is where I met a gentleman who's very famous in the world of wargaming these days. That's Pete Berry. Ah, okay. I've heard of him. I've heard of him. I, I'm sure you have, yes. Um, I'm actually hoping to um, help him out at Joy of Six this summer because I only live at the other side of the city. So uh, I could walk to um, Backers Towers if I wanted. Really? <laughs> yeah. So um, what I used to do was because it was a licensed premises and I was underage, they used to sort of, the students would smuggle me in so I could indulge. Indulge in, um, you know, it was mini figs and. Uh, heroics and Ross tanks and D and D and things like that. So that took me on. And also in those days, um, went to shows like Northern Military in Manchester. That was always a, an annual event. And I do remember meeting the likes of Ian Beck and the other guys from Halifax. Uh, you know, they were taking things like Rudis, the chariot racing, 
uh, Pony Wars, the the gunfights, they really inspired people like me to get more into fun games and try different things and also different types of rules as well. I went to university in 82 and I didn't do much there. I suppose I spent my time um, learning and drinking rather than playing toy soldiers. I suppose girls came along as well, but um, uh, when I got into when I got into when I got married, um, and I was uh, I got involved with the Leeds Club, which was um, based in Armley uh, in the 1990s, and that was a great club. Um, there would have been about 30 people there, and um, of course, one of the things I got involved in there was working at Fiasco um, when it was in Armley. Uh, sports center i remember um, that i traveled up to that a few times yeah and then it um i think before <laughs> as everything in my life it's usually linked to uh something going on in my personal life i got me divorced and that's when i moved away from leeds but i think the the, the last one i worked at fiasco was when it was at the as it was then the new armories so uh, i actually went last november to that and it's nice to i met about five of the guys that i knew from the 1990s <laughs> so um bit of nostalgia for you yeah we're all a bit fatter bolder and grayer <laughs> but yeah. we're, we're still still shoving toy soldiers round tables yeah yeah long long may that continue yeah and for me um and also from my friend carl who i said you, you met we um it got us a bit into battlefield touring as well. I think about 1988, uh, there was no books around like there are now, you know, tour guides and that. There was no internet. And we decided to go on a road trip because I'd just got a, you know, a, um, a company car. So it's like, let's take it around Europe. And um, in a week, when we went to places like uh, Ypres, the Somme, down to Verdun, Bastogne, Arnhem, Waterloo. And we just went to all these different places. That got me into like the 3D side of, of wargaming. That it's not all. There's actually a, you know a real aspect to what goes on. And over the past many, well, God, <laughs> I'm trying to think how many years, 30 years, 20, 20 odd years, I've been to battlefields like in the American Civil War, like Gettysburg and Antietam, but I've also been across the peninsula, across Europe, and um, you know some of the. the Holocaust places as well, and that led me into writing with uh, pen and sword. And over a course of several years, I wrote around I think it's about eight battlefield tour guides. You know the um, Battleground Europe. Yes, I do. Series. Yeah. So um, I started off writing those, and uh, over time, there's two people. Uh, my mentor has been uh, Professor John Bourne. He's um, He's been my go-to. I still email him now or chat to him when I see him. He's, um, I, I've helped him out with some of his research, and he's more than helped me out with pointing him in the right direction and putting me in contact with people. He, he's, a, he's a local of mine, John Bourne is, uh, from Stoke-on-Trent. Yes, originally, yeah. That's yeah, right. from Burslem, yeah. And, um, yeah, he's a, is it Port Vale? He's a, Port Vale, that's right, yes, yeah. for his sins. He's still going, yeah. <laughs> He was actually at, uh, there was a a meeting last Saturday of the Great War Group or Great War Forum, and he, he gave a, a talk there, didn't he? Yeah, so. He did. Um, still I have, going. Over the years, um, 
with John, I got involved in the Centre for First World War Studies that was originally at Birmingham. So I used to go to lots of conferences like that, day conferences. I've got to the age now where I can't cope with five lectures back to back. Um, it's, it's it's just not what I want to do anymore. I, I used to, I, I'm on I'm on different learning curves in other areas of history. That's all. Um, and another person who really helped me along was uh, Professor Gary Sheffield. He he took me through my master's degree in history at Birmingham. Um, but I have found that visiting battlefields has given me an appreciation of how space and time in pre-radio days is so important to how battles develop. If you're standing where a general is and it's you're thinking, well, that, that, that attack went on over there and that happened and that happened and it's quite a distance away. It's, it's how, how do they get things to do that before radios, you know? <clears throat> so, um, I say I've been to dozens of battlefields back in my day. I used to cycle them. We cycle things like Normandy in the Western Front. Um, I, I still cycle things, but I've got a motorcycle now, so that's all right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Easier on the legs. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I say uh, uh, one of my one of my books involved like going to twenty five battlefields around the peninsula, all the main British ones. So um, research over time has taken me to places such as um, the Public Records Office, as was now the National Archives at Kew, the Imperial War Museum. Um, but I've also spent four months uh, in the American archives, um, mainly in Washington, D.C. I was at the Library of Congress, which uh, has printed books and private collections. And I was also at the American National Archives, <coughs> excuse me, which is um, at the, near the University of Maryland. And that has all government documents. And I spent my time there uh, researching for my my degree and for my books. Um, I will say that my, my degree was on uh, command and leadership in the American Army uh, divisional level in the Second World War. And I was looking at what divisional commanders did. And I'll, I can talk more about that later if you wish. But it, it, but I've got it gave me a great insight by looking at the paperwork of the day as to how battles were run. And, and what commanders, you know, divisional commanders and brigade commanders were doing, which is effectively what we're trying to do when we're recreating something on the tabletop. And if we think about it, generals are often taught by wargaming, you know? Yes, yeah, absolutely. No, uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I've, I've talked about this before, actually, about um, when we wargame, what, what is it that we're trying to recreate and what command level are we talking about? So if you're playing a grand tactical set of rules um, like uh, Great War Spearhead or Ultra Freedom, which are two sets of rules that I play, uh, you are that divisional stroke core commander. Um, and the core commander isn't fussing about the formations over on his right flank. He's hoping the brigade commanders and regimental commanders are going to be able to, or he assumes that they're going to get those people into the right place. That, that's so um, I think it was could have been General George S. Patton, but it was one of his. If it wasn't him, it was one of his contemporaries that said, "You need to know what the chap below you is doing, and you don't really need to know what two levels down is doing." <laughs> 
because so if you're an army commander you need to know what your core commanders are doing and your core commanders will sure sort out your divisional commanders and and it cascades down to but um so i don't know if you know but i spent 12 years living in spain so i um i used to live in mallorca and uh my, I used to, oh, I sort of went back to the old days of, um, I used to have an annual trip to triples in Sheffield. And that's because um, my parents, uh, they're no longer with me now, but um, my parents lived literally on a bus route away from triples. So I used to come over once a year, pick up my grandson, pick up my son, sorry, and uh, see him, you know, do the family trip. And then we'd all go down to triples. So again, it was like, there's not, there's very, there are war game shops where I was living, but it was all, sci-fi and fantasy it was there was a there was a um, games workshop and something called the goblin store but uh, which was like a chain store but again that was all either sci-fi or board games or fantasy so i used to go for accessories paint brushes and paints and that but um so i didn't really do a lot when i was out in spain apart from i got interested in medieval spanish history <laughs> But um, when I came back to England, which was uh, about um, a year before lockdown, um, I started getting back into it. And uh, lockdown, it was like, I've got all these figures. I've still got figures from like 40 years ago, you know. <laughs> I've still got 15 mil mini figs and, you know, stuff like that. I don't throw anything away or sell anything. A bit of a hoarder. Well, I'm, I'm not. I know that some people get them and buy and sell and trade. I'm like, I, as you'll discover later, I'm more of a sort of painter and stuff. So, um, what I discovered, what I did was during lockdown was, um, I sort of went through everything and started rebasing. You know, bringing rebasing, and um, I'm sure a lot of people did. Just sort of, I don't need to buy new things. I've got my pile of shame was already painted. It just needed. <laughs> sprucing up you know and it was, yes, it was needed great. purpose yeah so i and for a very you know for i worked my way through that um now when it comes to what sort of armies I, i've got got i do have for me six mil now is my main army so if i'm gonna have a big battle you know it's six mil so at the moment i'm i've taken the plunge and i'm trying to paint six mil napoleonics and it's um it's at the it's at, it's, my, it's at my limits <laughs> for, for, for my eyes and all that and um but um for skirmish uh if i fancy doing a bit of skirmish i use 15 mil metal and um i say uh, that's because you can well i'll 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 admit now that i'm not a fan of 28 mil that's all Right. Okay. Um, that's fine. That's no, fine. no, no. It's. I mean, there's going to be in the course of this conversation. There's going to be a lot of things that I'll say I don't like that, and it's that's me personally. I'm not saying it's not good. I mean, what it is, I see, I see a table at somewhere like Hammerhead, and I think, wow, you know, 28 mil and all that, but I can't do that. <laughs> and if I tried to do it, it, I wouldn't be satisfied. That's. I can get what I the look that I want within my skill level at 15 mil skirmish. Do you get me? <clears throat> and and the, the my personal um, I'm not very good at painting. I've tried painting 28 mil plastics and it just doesn't work for me. That's all. That's just my. I'd rather paint 15 mil 
I get, I get 15 mil blue moon, you see. The, uh, they're they're very nice, aren't they, the blue moons? They are, they are. And, but without me going beyond my sort of level of skill, I can get something that's, that, that I show it to people. I'm proud to show it. Whereas 28 mil, I just don't, I, I don't have the technique. And I'm, so I stick with what I'm good at. I do paint some over time fantasy and science fiction. Uh, that's your sort of games workshop stuff. And I do that when I just fancy painting someone that's got no uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, you can get a bit bored of blue coats and uh, white yeah. straps, can't you, over yeah. time? But, <laughs> yeah, but um, but I'm not really a fan of sticking plastic, to be honest, as well. It's, um, you know, I, the person that comes, or the company that comes up with superglue that sticks to the plastic rather than to me is onto a winner. <laughs> Because I stick using a couple of pieces and then I'm usually walking around the room with bits of plastic stuck to me. Yeah, you've got a left arm hanging off your elbow yeah, or something. And yeah, you can't yeah. find it. But yeah. half of the reason for me doing fantasy and sci-fi bits is that my grandson is now uh, just turned eight. So when I go and see him, um, I like to sort of take a couple of boxes of, you know, sort of Dungeons and Dragons style figures or... Um, science fiction, you know, space marines or something, and I get him on the table, and he's like, oh, I get those. We're not playing a game, but it's he's putting them on a table, moving around a bit of scenery, you know, and it's like discussing, you know, like a little little game sort of thing. So I'm hoping over time that maybe he'll get interested. And the other good thing about it is it gets him off the television games as well. So it's like, turn off your Minecraft, and we'll – you know, he's got Minecraft moving little figures about, building things. I'm like, we can go and do that with three-dimensional figures, you know? You must be the coolest granddad ever. Not from an eight-year-old's point of view, no. <laughs> well, maybe not, no. <laughs> I, from a 51-year-old's point of view, I'm thinking, I wish my granddad had done that. <laughs> okay. But anyway, it's just uh, it's just putting those things in front of him. And maybe when he gets a bit older, I'll... You know, when he gets to 12, 10, 12, 14, he might say, let's go to a game show and see what he thinks. It's how you get people interested. Because uh, I can't sort of get a set of rules out or Dungeons and Dragons rules or, or a set of, you know, something like Frostgrave or Stargrave and say, right, we're going to play this. So he's going to go, no. <laughs> Far too mind-blowing. Um, if he doesn't get it within a minute, they don't want to know, you know. But... You know, that sort of summarises where I'm up to now. Um, I'm still painting lots. And um, I still spend a lot of time reading history. Uh, I'm still doing a bit of writing as well, because we can talk about it in a bit. And I'm also, one of the hobbies I've got as well is um, devising my own little rules as well, which I can talk more about in a bit. I rarely play them, but it's great fun making them up. And... Um, Conventions, yeah, Newark's the one I like going to. It's um, it's about an hour from where I am. I usually meet people there that uh, I know. Um, it's always a great, it's a great open airy, it's, it's, you know, it's a great venue. Lots of park, lots of parking. It's a big airy, you know, which uh, big light area. There's and there's a good mixture of uh, demonstration and trade. And the other one I like, obviously, is that because it's just on the tram route from me, is uh, Joy of Six with uh, Bacchus and Pete Berry. And I do occasionally visit clubs around here. It's nice to meet people. Uh, the downside is that they're usually doing either card games, board games, science fiction, 
or they're, they're doing games workshop stuff let's see so uh, they're all very interested in you until you say that i'm into doing you know 15 mil or 6 mil metal historical and the, the, their eyes glaze over <laughs> I've had that. I've had that before. Yeah. Yes. What do you mean? There was such such wizardry in the world. <laughs> yes. You make things out of metal. <laughs> I, I love the question. It. I love. I love the question where they say, uh, "What systems that for?" I'm like, "Oh, you've so much to learn, young man." Because <laughs> they assume there's there's a dedicated system for six mil Americans of war to the exclusion of everything else, I think. And uh, it, it is a, there's an educational part to that, I think, to say, look, the, the, the hobby is a lot wider than either Games Workshop or Warlord Games. It is. Um, you've, mind you, having said that, you've only got to look at the sort of people that attend somewhere like Hammerhead, you know, the, the age, you know, the age group. Yes. It's almost like there's a there's a watershed of uh, there's a watershed in age where people switch from science fiction, you know, from Games Workshop through to World of Games, really. Mm. It's that's how it is, you know. It's um, I, I, I'm not knocking World of Games at all because uh, they they are very accessible and they make. Uh, some fantastic figures, and they've got a wide range of periods that people can dive into. But I think those people who do move from Games Workshop and see Bolt Action, for instance, and think Bolt Action is the only World War II set of rules available, so I must play that. Uh, but it's 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 open, it's there's a mission somewhere to open those people's eyes to say actually there's World War II rules since the dawn of time that you could use from Donald Featherston right up to the two fat lardies. So I'll tell you where to start that mission. Where's that? Uh, with the magazines. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, don't, I don't buy Wargames magazines because they are selling for a handful of companies. It's that, I mean, again, that's my view. I'm not saying it's a bad thing that they're still selling magazines and people will buy them and people buy the figures. That's that's great. But you know. I, I certainly buy less of the magazines than I did do. I think pre-internet, um, I was I would certainly never miss uh, an issue of War Games Illustrated and miniature War Games. But I do think I have some sort of rose-tinted glasses when I look back at those magazines because they, it was my only access into the hobby. Well, there's two things happen there. One is there's a, there's a massive information that's now available, and the other thing is your experience has grown. We forget that uh, when we were 18, 19, I can remember 18, 19, you know, having a subscription for for various magazines, and it was... We used to get a magazine, and the other thing we used to do was we used to get a magazine, and we used to get, was it S&T, or was it Strategy and Tactics? The um, So every month, me, me, you know, my mate we met, we... We used to get that was if you don't know people are listening. It was um, it was a magazine, and there was a game in it, a board game, um, usually a simple one. But we used to play it all month, you know. That's that's how we that's how we grew our learning between that and the local library. There was nothing else. That that was quite an exotic magazine when I was around, Andy, because and I was aware of it. But then we had a uh, a, a gaming stroke uh, comic book store open up in Hanley in Stoke-on-Trent called Fantasy World. And they started to get um, the Avalon Hill ranges of games in like Squad Leader and uh, Fire Team Leader, this sort of thing. Uh, and Strategy and Tactics started to appear on, on the racks 
And I didn't buy many of them, but I did buy a, few, a good few and play the games that were in there, and I had great fun with them. I mean, yeah, I mean, in, our, in my early days, um, we used to uh, the SPI box games, you know? Oh, yes, yeah. It was SPI, Avalon Hill, and uh, I, I sold all mine when I was married. Like They're probably worth a fortune now, but... <laughs> but, but but we used to buy them we used to play them to death nowadays i see people that buy it play it once and then they buy another one yeah yeah it's it's almost that computer game generation thing i think there isn't it where people will buy a computer game for 50 pounds uh and they'll play it to, and complete it over the course of i don't know 20 or 30 hours and then you've done it so you don't need to play it again yeah, and I think also in war games as well, uh, there's always something new around the corner, uh, a lot faster than what you. When I started, I mean, one example I, I did was thinking of was with rules was when I was at the Leeds club, he was playing Napoleonics, and we got uh, Peter Gilders. It was called oh, in the Grand now. Manor. In the Grand Manor, I must have played that for ten years. Every week, you know. But nowadays, it's a new Napoleonic set comes along every month. <laughs> yes, this is right, because uh, back then, the, the published rules, um, you were probably limited to what came out of tabletop games um, and, and one or two other companies that would produce, or it would be the stuff that had been um, written by one person and, and, and photocopied and stapled together and sold at a show. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, now I come to where my war gaming is. Um, I've got also, I've I've got a cellar full, and uh, I've probably got about I've got thousands of figures basically. Right. <laughs> Feels a bit like a confessional, this does, Andy. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, I've got thousands of figures in my basement. <laughs> yes, it does, Father Robert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what would you say is your? So you've got thousands of figures, but what would you say is your main? era of interest in the hobby well i'll go through what my main ones are there's about six of them and i, I flip-flop between them because i just do <laughs> you're um, a war gamer andy that's what absolutely, we do absolutely yeah yeah that's yeah. what we do i've sort of reached an equilibrium now where i don't need to buy anything because i've already got it <laughs> right as long as you don't buy again forgetting you've already got it that's that's a dangerous point to go down well that did happen that nearly happened recently i was um i was looking at buying you know like coastal command ships oh yes i discovered that i already had 50 of them and i didn't know <laughs> <that. laughs> it lost a whole fleet somewhere yeah but i must have bought them like 30 years ago they're nice little models but because i was discussing you know the ghq that's is it ghq the miniatures ships yes yeah yeah and i'm like i was in a war game shop going how much <laughs> <laughs> something the size of your little fingers like 15 pounds and i'm like yes. mm. i've got a shoebox for these i don't remember buying them so um i mean these are just some of the ones i've done in medieval spain because i lived in spain and i traveled a lot around castles and battlefields so um i got 15 mil and um i don't use line rampart um i'm like looking for army size battle but uh uh, another one is I do is a Wars of the Roses. Um, it's not Bill Hook, so I've got um, I've got six mil scale two armies, which are both backers. 
I've had a lot of fun trying to come up with. I've, I've, I've been. I go to somewhere like Towton and sit there for an hour trying to think. How the hell do you run a battle? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great. It is a great thing to do. I'm going to go up again with my friend uh, when the weather. Gets, you know, in a couple of weeks. It's. It, it's a bleak bit of countryside, isn't it? Yeah, Tabs? but just to actually s- sort of sit and think. How, how do you how do you work a battle? <laughs> Thousands of people, and, and it's and just trying to think about if you're the army commander, what do you do? If you're like the ward commander, what do you do? If you you've like got a few, how do you, if you've got a suit of armor on, how how long can you actually batter somebody with it? It's it's a it's not, a great not long. no, but it's a great it's it's a great exercise. Just sitting yeah. looking across the field and thinking, how do I make this work on a table? Hmm. What what rules have you used with the six mil wars of the roses stuff then? Um, I've been playing with my own rules, so um, I'm just. You haven't go. actually used any of the commercial rules available yet, then. You'll discover soon that I haven't used any. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm actually. I'm. I'm not. I'm more. I think it's not a case of sitting down and like sitting opposite, a, you know, a pal and and having a, and trying to beat each other. And that's my objective is to put the figures out and try and work out something what would happen or trying to make a solo game, you know, and trying to work through something that works how I think it should out in real life. Trying to make it rather than trying to make a mechanism that is enjoyable between two people trying to outdo each other, which is what competition games are, isn't it? They are, and I think this. I won't segue on this point, but I'll, I'll just make it very quickly. Uh, the Wars of the Roses is a very interesting case in point because a lot of the sets of war games rules that I see for the Wars of the Roses have these individual little units of 10 or 20 men marching around the table as if they're Napoleonic's, Napoleonic regiments and sort of battering each other, whereas my understanding of a Wars of the Roses battle was nothing like that. Well, no, I mean, when I put my two armies out, there's, there's a six-foot-wide table, and I've, I've got over a 1,000 six-mil figures, you know? It's, it actually looks like an aerial view of a massive reenactment, you know? <laughs> and that's, when you've got that out, you're actually like, you can't just sort of, I'm going to wheel these, and they're going to move this way, and then wheel that way. It just doesn't work. But um, let me think. Napoleonics have dabbled in and out of those for years. Um, as I say, it was Grand Manor back in the day when I was at Leeds. I I got some 15s, Blue Moon, lovely. I'm, t- I'm trying to come. I've, I've I've watched Sharps practice. It's interesting, um, but um, I'm not into black powder. That's just it's it's not me. I, I know I know loads of people enjoy it. You know, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, again, it's it's just not what I want out of the experience. But it is what a lot of people want. It's a very popular rule set, so I ain't going to say it's no good. It's just not what me personally want. Um, and at the moment, I'm painting, I've set myself a challenge of painting British, French and Russian 6 mil from Bacchus. So that's uh, I'm surrounded by little figures. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, No, it's great. I sometimes set myself a difficult painting project to see whether I can do it or not. Right, okay. Um well, three three Napoleonic armies is a difficult painting project. Well, it's Mr. Berry's fault for the third one. They had a 10% discount sale on because it was his birthday, so I had to buy him, didn't I? 
Well, that's I, I think that might be the only sale he's ever had. So yes, you had to get in whilst you could. Well, yeah, I've known him for forty years, and I can't remember one. So no. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, when I'm known him, known him, you know, cross paths with him over the years, and yeah. I, know, I know how hard it was for him to do it. So yes, um, and also. Uh, Oh, what was I going to say? Now you've blown me. My, yeah, it was also because I could pick him up from the show. And it's important, this, that I got a 10% discount and then I picked him up from the show. That's like 20% off. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a significant amount of money, you know, which yeah. obviously I didn't save because I just bought more figures. <laughs> but that's why you do save the money, so you can buy more figures. That's, that's the circle of life in the wargaming terms. Um, yeah, I've got a games. I've got a games room in the cellar, which it's too cold. So I've set myself a table up in the front room, which, uh, which um, I've got to. You know these, um, you know, like a wedding buffet tables. Yes. I've got a two foot six one and a one foot six one. Put them together, and I put a, I put over the. That's my four foot wide table, but it can fold. It folds away, and it's very sturdy because it's actually a proper made table rather than it hanging around in a couple of dining room tables. And then across that, I put, do you know, like yoga mat squares? Yes. The black sort of jigsaw type ones. Yes, I've got, I've got some. Yeah. I put, I put those down just to give it a smooth level and make sure nothing slides around. So I, I use them for the same purpose. Yeah, it's just a. It means that when I don't need the table, uh, it folds up against the wall in the very. You know, and that's. I'm just saying that because I know a lot of people have issues with space for a decent table so uh yeah moving on american civil war i've got six millimeter adlers uh two large armies and um i do like very much the altar of freedom rules yeah um i don't actually use them but i've used them to i've, I've making my own which are called can long endure which i'll talk about later yeah um but i do like Alter freedom because of the command and leadership element of it. That that uh, commanders have different traits, yeah, uh, which I find very interesting. And also the the points system, which is uh, that's that's the sort of friction who can do what and when. So that limits what you can and can't do. So I, I am a big fan of Little War TV. They um, I must have watched their videos lots of times, and also quite often I buy the rules once they've, uh, you know, once they review, so they play it, review it, and I'm like, I'll give that a go. Yes, <laughs> they've cost me quite a bit of money over the last few years. Now, um, World War One, uh, as well, uh, fifteen months. I've written forty books altogether for four different publishers over twenty years. Wow. Of which, uh, fifteen of them are based on the First World War. And the, including in that is a 10-part series on the Western Front between 1914 and 1918. And that's given me a great insight into how First World War was run. It starts off like a, an American Civil War-style combat, you know, at Mons Lakato, the start of the war, open warfare, then goes into trench warfare, and then it breaks out into a combined arms World War II style in 1918. I've, I see that there's a lot of World War One rules, of which I've usually got issues with, just because I don't think it's the war that I that I think it was. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. On the 8th of August, 1918, east of Amiens, 
the Canadian Corps advanced eight miles in a day with tanks, artillery, mortars, planes. That's not moving inches across mud, is it? Eight miles in one day. So the last talk I did for the Western Front Association, which I've been involved with for a lot of years, was on the final days of the First World War, where they were averaging a mile a day advancing. So there's a lot of scope there for a type for, for a game, which I know people try it. I'm not, I know. I'm not saying that nobody's done it, but people need to get out of this trench mindset, you know. There is something there that is worth going for. Finally, Second World War. Um, do you know what? Uh, Second World War, I've got some flames of war, but I find it was like Napoleonic. It was like the tanks are lined up like Napoleonic cavalry, you know? Yes. I don't get that, apart from the fact that they're trying to get you to put as much money on the table. I, I don't know. You don't get what I mean? <laughs> well, it, it's, I think there's the, the old cliche with Flames of War that uh, you have tanks sort of wheel to wheel and, and spread across the length of the table. And um, in a competition sense, because I know a lot of people play Flames of War in a competition setting, that might make sense. But the his, for me, the history is lost a little bit. Well, and, again, uh, I'm just... Uh, Again, it's it's a popular rule set, so I'm not yes, knocking exactly, it. Yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm just saying that it's not a game that attracts me. That's all. And 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 as I'm not a bucket of dice person either, I might as well say now. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> I'll add that down onto the confessions. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like bolt action. I've watched quite a lot of um, stuff on YouTube. It's it's nice, simple, introductory Second World War stuff. You know, it's. Um, Again, very popular. Very popular, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of course it is. And it's and do you know what? Things like Bolt Action and one of the Black Powder and uh, one or two others, the Flames of War and that, they are the gateway from the the fantasy sci fi into historical. Without that, you know, because if you go to let's say you're trying to get somebody into Second World War and you introduce them to some of the other complex game sets that um, you know, I know that um Alex at um, is it, is Storm of Steel. Storm of Steel, yeah, he loves his O group, but people aren't going to move from from science fiction to that. They need like a gateway to it, I think. Something something that brings them into it. So that's just some of the wargaming um, things I've been done. I've got bits of naval. I've got ancient naval. I've got some sailing ships. I've got I've got I've got most things. Uh, I'm afraid. So that's my confession over on. <laughs> Well, that's a lifetime of hobbying, isn't it, Andy? And I think any wargamer of our generation uh, at some point has probably dabbled in most eras of history and, and most, whether it's sea, land or air, um, it's not unusual. No, I mean, for me, I think my um, only era I've not really dabbled in is ancient and I can probably trace that back to about 1996 when the Leeds Wargames Club tried to get me interested in WRG 7th edition competition games. And and if you understand that, you'll know why I've never gone back to ancient. <laughs> it was a very complex set of rules, which they tried to make me get into it. And I tried it, but I used to go home after two hours with a headache. So it's like... The, the best thing I I always remember of that era of War Games rules and the ancients is the arguments that you would see at the World Championships at Derby. Um, 
It's a great spectator sport. <laughs> it was a great spectator sport. Uh, but I never got involved. No, I mean, for people who have not come across it, you know, that's um, not as ancient as we are, uh, there was a big, like, uh, concert room, wasn't there, at Derby? Yeah. And um, there used to be all these tables all set out in regimented rows. And, and if you look from the balcony down, you just see the, you know, the backs of people bent over, scratching their heads, and all of a sudden there'd just be an almighty row going on. <laughs> <laughs> and it'd be about some set of rules. I think my favourite little story of that, there was one guy, he got... Um, they discovered that his tape measure that was about twelve millimeters for every ten, so it was actually <laughs> he'd had a he'd had a, a specially made tape measure that was re engineered so that he could move all his troops a little bit further than everybody else. I love it. <laughs> I mean I've heard of weighted dice before, but not a not a extended tape measure. That's an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> right, so so that's that's uh, sort of your wargaming um, interests and, and collections. Um, you've, you've talked there, though, that although you've got all these figures, it seems as though you don't really follow any of the commercial sets. You've, you've got interests in some of them, like Ultra Freedom, and you appreciate how popular some of them are. But you, it looks like you plough your own furrow and, and try to try to develop your own, own rules or systems or mechanics that satisfy your own need. So uh, have you written a full set of rules that you've played or is it bits and bobs of dabbling in mechanics? How, how's that developed over the years? Well, it's not a very straight furrow because it goes from one period, goes from one era to another. And it's not a very regular one. Um, I, I see. I seem to, what, what seems to happen. The process seems to be that, um, and I'm sure a lot of people do go through this process. I, I get interested in something through reading, or I see something. I go out and buy the figures, and by the time I've finished painting the figures, I've sort of moved on to something else. Yeah, familiar but, story. Uh, it, it is, and. Um, one of the great, well, it's a double-edged sword nowadays when it comes to rules and other things is that um, I don't have to buy them to know what they're like. Many years ago, the only way of finding out what set of rules was to actually play them. And that was either playing, either buying them because magazines advertised them or talked about them or your friends had them. Nowadays, um, YouTube and other sources um, you can actually watch people playing them and decide whether you want to dabble beforehand. So quite often I think, oh, there's an interesting era. I have a look at the set of rules, and by the end of an hour of watching it, I think that's not the experience I want. Um, I mean, to me, I mean, if you think about it with war game sets nowadays, um, these, these are my views, and I don't know whether people agree with them or not, but it seems there's an awful lot of them about rules. And you've only got to look at something like War Games Vault to see that there's, they're coming out all the time. And other thousands on there, aren't there? Yeah. And uh, as I stated earlier, you know, we, we used to play sets for years back in the day. And that's all because there wasn't many about. And I do find that despite, well, 40, 40 years of War Game, you know, there, it's still pretty much the same in a lot of ways that um, 64 table, it's a two hour experience. We line up on opposite sides of the fields and 
shuffle forward towards each other, and hopefully we get some fighting before the end of the night. But... And a six to hit. <laughs> yeah. Um, something very similar. Yeah, and no, what I do find is that, um, you know, it's one thing is, is, is about rule sets as well, that it's the cost of them. It's nowadays they're, uh, you, some of them are like 40 quid for a soft bound book. You know, it's, so all it is is a big chunky magazine. Now, I'm not going to go into the financial details, but I've been in publishing for 20 years as an author, and I know that if I do a 60,000 word book with a lot of its illustrations, it's 25 quid hardback book, you know? So I don't get why, I don't get the pricing, do you get me? Yes, I, I, I do. Um, although I think economics comes into it, doesn't it? If, if people are, if people are prepared to pay forty pounds for a set of glossy rules with lovely pictures on that, essentially is a coffee table book. Um, yeah, see, what I'm doing there is I'm I'm presenting the question because everybody's got their own answer. Do you get me? <laughs> well, no, exactly, and you know that's I think part of this episode today is a bit of a state of the hobby uh, question, really, to sort of discuss where we are because I. I Having spoken to you at Hammerhead, I know that you've got some views that perhaps don't run parallel with the <laughs> with the 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 the, uh, the stream of conscience that we've got in the hobby at the moment, which is I think was why I was so interested in, in to speak to you, Andy. To be honest, so yeah, uh, I mean, like I say, it's forty quid for hundred and twenty pages. Uh, quite often, the, the rules are very generic to other ones when you've been around for a lot of years you can sort of look through a set of rules and think that's come from that that's come from that that's come from that um and it's it's been a bit of tweaking a bit of jazzing up a few original ideas so a lot of them you can almost strip them back to the days of featherstone and that you know it's not a not a big leap forward well no you can certainly see you can see the evolution from featherstone can't you uh, and I would argue that a lot of the Games Workshop rules and even Warhammer Ancients, when that first came out, it isn't too far removed from what Don Featherstone was writing in the 60s. No, I, I, I get that. I don't really know those rules well enough, but I get, I get, I get what you mean. It's uh, all it is. It's, it's a tweaks, tweaks of mechanics, and also, excuse me. Not only have you got the the rule books, you've then got, um, oh, you need army lists that you've got to yeah. buy. And then you've got to buy the scenarios. Well, I mean, I think they should be on websites, you know, things like that. But And 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 once you've bought all the army books and all the scenario books, that's generally when the second edition comes. I was coming to that. But Sorry. <laughs> it was at the forefront of my mind, I thought. Well, yeah. I, I, I usually find that the, se the second editions come along when um, the general public's uh, playtested it. <laughs> right, okay. Well, it's a bit like what Apple do, in fairness, though, isn't it? They'll send, send out a, a new product knowing that there's bugs in it and then let the uh, consumer say what the bugs are. I mean, that's come along because um, social media means that... Um, good ideas you know if you've got a set of rules and somebody has a good idea or comes up with a there's a glitch in the system it can be passed around the world on social media you know you couldn't do that before social media you do you're stuck with it was cast in stone literally you know you can until so yeah um now 
the other thing as well, which I've, I've well, I, I see in all, I see in a lot of these games, and again, it goes back to Games Workshop model, which is once you've got the rules and you've got all the books to go with it, you then need the dice, you need the tokens, you need the chits, you need the cards. I saw a set of cards to play a game for eight pounds, playing cards, eight pounds to. You know, to play, if you don't have them, you know, you, you need it to play the game. It's like <sighs> playing cards are a pound. You know, where's the other seven pound going? <laughs> um, I think I'm, I come from Yorkshire, so I don't expect. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, the other thing that's also pretty standard is that, I mean, this is why I, I, I don't think I'll ever write a set of rules. Is but I'm, I like having ideas for rules that I understand. But as soon as I want to make it a set of rules, I've then got to write it like a legal document because I'm trying to explain my ideas for third parties that I can't speak to. And believe me, I've tried, and it's I, I, hey, hats off to anybody that can do it. I don't think I can. I've written forty books on historical things, but to actually have your ideas, put them down, and then explain them for somebody else. It's very difficult. Um, and then the other thing that's always been around for Eternal is the A4 play sheet. Yeah. Um, so you've got, you know, 120 pages of rules that you fit onto an A4 play sheet. Things that complaints I see about rules and is Poor proofreading, you know. Now I've I've written historical books, and when you're out, you can't you can't I can't write I couldn't write a historical book. The printer then does it, and then I say, oh well, if you find anything's wrong, let me know and I'll change it. <laughs> you can't do that, you know, with a historical book. You, you can't play test historical books, can you? No, no, that's right. It's, it's what you do. Basically, if you write one with poor proofreading or poor facts, you don't write another book. It gets binned by uh, by the critics. Uh, <clears throat> but in all these books, I must say that the and it's it's what's expected is that the price is pushed up because the, it's always high quality paper. The paper is, is a big cost. It's glossy. It's glossy or high quality colour paper. And that's because people expect nice pictures. I wonder when that change came in, though, Andy, because I, I referenced back to the old tabletop games sets of rules, which were A5, uh, stapled, photocopied, and on maybe a, the odd line drawing. And a, and a makeshift typewriter. <laughs> on a makeshift typewriter. So I, I'm just struggling to think when that sort of transition happened where people now expect the big glossy hardback full color i'm going to give you a clue and i don't know whether it's the right clue it was something that uh, the guys at um, little wars were talking about it was fire and fury american civil war when that came out in the 90s it like was groundbreaking because it had color pictures and it had proper um like engineering style drawings rather than hands you know rather than they were almost hand drawn in the in the early days weren't they yeah yeah well yeah. table the ruler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah 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 but but hey look i mean you know it's nice to put nice pictures in sure but it does put the price up does it actually contribute a lot to the rules um and i'll say that because 
there's those nice pictures, but they don't actually look like the tabletop that you have at home or a club night, do they? Never. They they look like something that's more akin to um, a historical or you know model railway exhibition. You know. It's... Yeah. Yeah. There's never never a wood represented by a bit of felt and some litching thrown on top of it. No, no, no. no. And I, I do know that. Um, we, well, we all know from going to to conventions that there's an awful lot of some really high class stuff out there, which takes an awful long time to do. But is that true wargaming? That's an interesting question. <laughs> so what we see at demonstrations, at conventions, and what we see in in rule sets and magazines is not what we actually do on the table. Because it takes to we don't want to spend several hours we don't want to spend hundreds of hours making a you know a a recreation of a certain battlefield and then setting it all up. We just want to throw stuff on the table and play again, don't we? So the emphasis in rule books and at conventions is about how it looks. And then when we sit down with a friend, it's how it plays. Again, that's an interesting point because I've heard critics say of games put on, at, say, Salute, that they've said... Um, there's been some fantastic uh, demonstration games with some excellent modelling. And then in the corner is a club who've clearly just used the uh, uh, the show to put on a big game for themselves. And the terrain is nothing better than you would see on an average club night. So it's actually frowned upon in, in, in some quarters. If you take to a war game show as a demonstration or as a participation, a game that only looks as good as you might see down at the local club. Yep. So what um, what we're seeing in the shop window is not what we're selling, is it? And and it has. I have noticed. I mean, I do keep mentioning little wars because they are for me the number ones for doing real reviews. And when they bring up a set of rules, they sort of say presentation. Well, it's a beautiful, nice, glossy piece with all the pictures as we expect. It's like, well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, but that that's separate to the actual content, isn't it? So so nu numerous times they've done a review and said this is a beautiful book, but actually the content and the support and the playability are are, are leave a lot to be desired. Do you know the phrase that comes to mind there? Fur coat, fur coat, and no knickers. I was about to say, but I didn't dare. <laughs> well, it is. It's all all for show and not for good, yes. isn't it? It's yeah, exactly. Fun. Yeah. Um, but you know, and as we get uh, we get older and wiser, we can spot these things, and also through YouTube, we can na navigate our way through things like that. Now, that brings me on to sort of, well, brings us on to what I was going to talk about next, which is actually the content of the rules, as in the actual gameplay. Now, when I think about when I thought about it, you know, people demand accurate figures, you know. They then spend time painting exquisite uniforms. You know, they're checking out everything. The buttons are right and all that. They then uh, go out and buy expensive terrain. And yet they'll play a game which doesn't really give them a good experience. It can be either very slow. It can be, <clears throat> the word I used was turgid. You know, it's you set everything up and not a lot happens. I was I watching a, a YouTube game uh, last night, the night before. And I skipped along, you know, because I didn't want to watch it all. I just skipped along. And over the course of, like, 45 minutes of playing, some of the figures moved, like, about six or eight inches, you know. 
but there was about a hundred die rolls. It's like, and what? You know, it's not what I want. Um, but so people are playing games that give you a very slow moving game. And it's quite brain numbing with the amount of rules that you've got to get in your head and searching through. There often there isn't an index and things like that. And you don't get an experience. I know that people like realism in games and, you know, we're not actually killing anybody, so we can't get realism, but at least an experience where you're playing a game that's enjoyable and it's something like what what actually happens, you know? It's that immersion factor, isn't it? I think you need to feel immersed in the game. I think we all realise that wargaming is more game than war um, and that really none of us would choose to stand in place of one of our plastic-colored soldiers. Um, but you want that sort of immersion to think, yes, I think this is what it would probably look like or, or feel like to move a tank down this road thinking that you might get shot in the side by uh, a piet at any point. I think it's that immersion, isn't it, that we... I, well, sorry, again, I'm generalizing. For me, it's the immersion. Is a big factor. Okay. Can I take you back many, many years ago then? And one of these games was actually at Hammerhead. That was Pony Wars. It's a great fun game. Not nothing much to do with history, but it's a really good tactical, you know, real fun game. It, it sets its stall out though, Andy, doesn't it? To say this isn't history. This is Hollywood. You know, so but it's still war gaming. But it's a different type of war game. Um, I mean, I I often I stand and watch, or or I, I I look at YouTube, and I I do think that a lot of war game experiences are like a game of drafts, an overcomplicated game of drafts. And and by that I'll explain that you set up your two sides, and then I move four inches, and you shoot, and you move four inches, and I shoot. You know, or or a, or a variation on that theme, and that means that everybody knows what's happening. You can see what your opponent's doing. You can plan for it, etc. You've got that helicopter view. You know. Now, I want something that's more like a game of chess. If you think about chess, is and I've I really haven't got over this. This is why I haven't got my set of rules finished. I'm trying to work on a set of rules which. If you're if you're like General Lee at Gettysburg, you, you don't sort of go, well, he's moved a little bit. Oh, I'm going to move them over there because they're moving a little bit. You know, it's it says to Longstreet, I want you to take that hill and get on with it, and as fast as you can. And he's not fast. You see what I mean? Because as we have stated earlier, um, there's far too much micromanaging for what I want. Uh, and when you start micromanaging, that's when you get bogged down in the micro shuffling. You know, it's that's a great term, micro shuffling. I know exactly what you mean by it. I love that phrase. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, again, you know, a lot of people like that. They they like when they're playing that. That's what they're when they're stood at the table. That's what. Oh, you move that. I'm going to do this, and I, I can see what you're doing. And you, you get what I mean. It's what a lot of people want. But um, it's it's not what I want, you know. So how do you combat then that then, Andy? Because um, that that does describe. I think that micro shuffling that you're talking about, to greater or lesser extent, describes 
quite a few of the popular rule sets out there. And I know there's friction built into some of these games, like bolt action, you draw a dice out of a bag, so you don't know if you're going to be able to move next or not, yeah, or if no, in no. Two Fat Lardies you roll your dice, which tells you what you can do, and you might not be able to do what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. I, um, but I ultimately, know. ultimately, it does come down to that, that bit where you're shuffling a, a unit around to, into the best position because you think you're going to get a flank shot, and then you're going to roll your dice. Yeah, I think... Um... Again, you know what I'm saying about sitting in the field thinking about time and space? It's, for me, right, I'll, I'll just try and talk my way through it, is that um, when you're an army commander, the way I'm sort of laying out my rules is, and from what I've read, is that army commanders, they've got two sorts of orders. They've got what I call proactive orders and reactive orders. Proactive orders is generally the night before the battle or the morning of the battle, uh, gets his core commanders together or visits them and tells them what he wants them to do gives them objectives nothing more it's like you know you're a you're a fully fledged core commander you know how to do it i just want you to take that because i want somebody else to do that down there um and on gaming terms i would i'd probably do that with you giving your your elements their order and what turn they're going to commit it on yeah and then you've got what you call reactive, what I call reactive orders, and that's where during the course of the battle something happens, and you're like, well, I want you, I want that division to change from a hold to an assault, but you can't just click your fingers and it happens like you would in a lot of games. You've actually got to get the message from army to corps to division, and then your brigades have got to, you know, that everybody's like, come on, lads, we're going to go now, and that takes a lot of time. But the actual time, and I've done it, I've physically done it. You you walk across the battlefield somewhere like Towton from the York Kiss to the Lancastrian position. It might take you an hour to get the order out and be ready for it, but it'll take you like 10 minutes to walk space. And, and you don't hang around because that's your killing zone. So the way I'm looking at things is that the time is, and I do little order sticks like that, little lolly sticks that you write your order on and it moves, it moves down the chain of command. Uh, and to actually cross what I'd call no man's land or the killing zone doesn't take takes you don't need to take measure it they just move into it once they get the order. Do you get what I mean? So uh, actually closing into contact and that's either from ancient right up to almost uh, American Civil War times because after you know when the radio comes in you know radios come in it becomes instant communications. So that's. That's what I'm trying to get to is that you've either got to pre-plan the attack, and it always doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen when when you when you, you you've you've got your objectives and all that, and you, but it doesn't happen as it, it, your plan doesn't work as it should, and that's a bit like chess where you come up with a strategy and then, but the opponent does something that interferes with it. You get me? Yeah, and. So I mentioned a set of rules earlier on called Great War Spearhead. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I, I've, um, I think I've seen them at maybe at Joy of Six a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and I've seen them online. Yes. So um, Robert Dunlop um, usually puts on a, a large First World War game using those rules. I think. It, um, He's looking at Gallipoli uh, for this year, for this Joe Six. Um, but in those rules, um, 
which essentially, if you break it down to the moving, shooting, fighting, morale aspect, are fairly standard, I think. Um, the I think the intrinsically brilliant part of those rules is the is the fact that at the start of the game you have to give orders to your formations as the, as the core commander or army commander um and draw so it's not a written order as such but um you've got an arrow that you will draw on a map of the table and your formation has got to make follow that arrow and stop where the arrow finishes regardless of what else is going on around you so if there's a flank attack coming in you've still got to follow that arrow because that's what the troops on the ground would have understood and known about unless you can get an order change into them and and there's a mechanic where you can change those orders but it's quite difficult cumbersome and time consuming um so for me that that sort of covers that but um I understand this bit where and I've never particularly enjoyed games where you had to write orders every single turn. No, I thought that was a bit unrealistic. Yeah, 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 it's a bit too micromanaged. See, with me, what I'm doing is you've got two sorts of orders. One is that before the game starts, you give a command. And and the order, I mean, if you think about it, and I know I've tried to think about it, is that you're either telling a commander one of two things. You're saying, hold that position, or you're saying, attack that position at this time. I don't see what else, you know. It's... And that's exactly what Great War Spearhead does. Those are the orders. You can have a timed order, uh, which might go in on the fifth turn, and, and the units will start, or formation will move on that turn, which will, will correlate to an, uh, uh, a real time uh, within the battle. Or you have an attack or hold or defend orders. Um, so I think that sort of covers that, but you don't see that sort of, um, mechanism very often and I, I think that's really at the core of those set of rules which is why I enjoy them for the First World War which as you mentioned earlier I think is a very difficult period to get right on the tabletop. Yeah I mean with the First World War it's it's difficult to cover the war in one set of rules because you're covering three styles of conflict which um, I think the mistake that some people try and do they try and bridge 14 to 18 you got it's not, not yes. Yeah, so, so in Great War Spearhead, the the trench war is almost a supplement. is is almost uh, additional rules to the 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 standard game. So there's very specific things that happen, like a a, a pre-game bombardment that will last between, I think it's between five and seven days, and you calculate what, what the results of that is. And, uh, it's quite quite an involved process, but it's it's completely separate to the the actual core mechanics of the game. That's good. It's and, and you know, in all this, people are trying different things. You know, and they are trying new mechanisms. Some of them, I, I sometimes wonder that some rules are just rehashed other rules to support a, a new line of figures or something. But I know that some people are trying new ideas, and um, I'm trying my own because I like. It's something I enjoy doing. I'd rather. I'd rather spend my time reading and then making notes and then coming up with something that I can do on the tabletop rather than going out and buying buying a set of rules and then all the things that go with it and trying to learn what someone else is telling me to do. You know, I, I spent four years writing books on the First World War. It's 
I've got my own mind. I've got my own ideas on what you should do, not without going to somebody else. Do you get me? That's and this is. Oh, this is a dilemma, you know. <laughs> the great thing about wargaming is it leads us into reading books, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. I don't know any wargamer that doesn't enjoy reading. Uh, yeah, and the, and, and, and the problem is, and I've come across a few friends like this, is my mate who you met at the show is like this, you know, the more we read books, the less we like what Wargaming does. <laughs> it's, it's like a Catch-22 situation that Wargaming gets us interested in history, which then puts us off Wargaming. And it's all because we, tr- you know, you get what I mean? Yeah, I, I do, because in my experience, especially when I've been part of, say, uh, a water, let's say Waterloo, for instance. Um, it's it's very rare that it feels anything like what you've read in the book when you play the game. Yeah, or visited the area, you know, visited the battlefield. It's, or if you walk the land, if you stand on top of the lion mound and look down and walk around Hougamon or uh, any of the farms, then it any re- I've probably played Waterloo four or five times. Um, and always come away a little bit underwhelmed by the experience, to be honest. I mean, uh, let me think, about 10 years ago, I spent nearly two weeks going around the peninsula battlefields. And the great thing in Spain, Portugal, and southern France is that there's not a lot of uh, building, modern building where the battlefields are. So so where you stand... well-preserved. Well, they're just in areas, in rural areas, you know. It's not that the... It's not that they're preserved. It's that there's nobody, nobody wants just to build anything. T- yeah, nobody, just haven't been touched. <laughs> yeah. But you go into the Pyrenees, you know, and it's, you, you look at where there's half a dozen of Wellington's battles in the Pyrenees, and it's nothing like what goes on at the table, you know. The sieges. How many times have you, you know, this, 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 there's a lot of sieges in, in the Peninsula War as well. It's, they're never really well done in war gaming, but they should be. Often they're an afterthought in rules that don't like a little bolt on. I'll, I'll throw this question at you then, Andy. That um, does it matter? So when I say that, when I say that, if if you've got a club or a couple of mates who have painted up beautifully uh, painted Peninsula War armies and they want to fight Albuera or Salamanca. Um, and they have, they're aware of the history of that battle and, and what actually happened. Um, and then they use black powder to refight that battle. Um, and they enjoy it. it. That clearly doesn't matter to them, does it? That's their own version of the hobby. Absolutely, and this, this, yeah, is yeah. Why, this is why I think uh, the hobby is so interesting. Yeah. Because there's so many different opinions and well, personalities. I mean, I, I did say, you know, I've said early on and I probably said it a couple of times more that just because it's not what I want, I do, I do accept that it's very popular. That's, you know, it's, um, it is, it is a dilemma. It is a bit of a catch 22. Um, you know, I, I was at, um, I was at one show and they, they had a, a peninsula war battle on, you know, and it's like the, um, it's been explained to me what happened in the battle. And I went, I walked the battlefield. It's nothing like that. It's, you know, it's, I walked it. So your terrain is nothing like the battle. So you're having a great game. It looks lovely, but don't, you're trying to educate me about a battle that that I've been to. And it's not like what you're doing. So, so do you get what I mean? It's, 
It's and you know I'm not knocking them because they've, they've spent a lot of time building it, spent a lot of time painting it, and then they're saying that this is how it was, and it's like no, it wasn't. <laughs> but yes. you, you, yeah. you've set on a great display, and you. How many times have you seen uh, a demonstration where it tells you that it's a, a, a particular battle and that? But it, you're thinking, it doesn't look like anything like what a battle I remember. Yeah, and it can be it can be something. Simple. So I'll go back to Waterloo. So the first my first memory of playing uh, or refighting Waterloo was in 15 mil using uh, the principles of war rules, and one of the guys had built Hugemon using the old card mm. Hugemon that used to get from miniature war games, which was okay. must have been three foot by two foot across. Wow. Um, it was ginormous. Uh, and that that was plonked on the table on, on the left-hand side from the French perspective. And you got something uh, in a similar scale to Le Haissant in the middle. And then over over to the right, you got Plantoir and the other the other farms and villages. Uh, and it, it looked great, but Hougamon was the size of a New York City in, in scale yeah, equivalent. Yeah, yeah. Um and uh, so that's a, another thing where sometimes these recreations of battles using certain sets of rules will skew the perspective. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's hey, look, if people are enjoying themselves, it doesn't matter, does it? it no, it, it doesn't. You're absolutely right. But it's always good to have a different perspective and different view on these things because oh, no, somebody, I... might, somebody might hear somebody saying well actually if you did this instead of that then that would be more, more that would be closer to what actually happened yeah you know I, mean, I mean without without criticizing i know it one thing that i've noticed that i've just come to mind there is that in recent years there's more emphasis away from like competition games more emphasis into reenactments you know, like years ago, it was all about having a like a WRG experience of I have one army, you have another one, we try and beat each other. Nowadays, it's like, okay, we're going to recreate the Battle of Shiloh or Gettysburg or Waterloo over the table, which it's, it's great for doing. It's, it's Again, it's the difference between a, a demonstration at a convention and a club night. When you've got a demonstration, you can try and set up something that's realistic to what it was. When you've got a club night, you, you can't, can you? You haven't got the time. You haven't got the time or the space. No. Uh, uh, you. I mean, if you're doing Waterloo, you can always throw down, you can always throw down for any battle, like green felt cloth, and have a building that doesn't look anything like Hougamon in the relative place and, and, and the other buildings. But it's not but what it, it won't, isn't it? it? Well, it won't, have, it won't have the aesthetic. It won't give you the same aesthetic pleasure. No, but it's not really Waterloo, is it? It's, it <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a matter well. of opinion, isn't it? That you can, <laughs> if, you can, if you can suspend your disbelief and say that this generic farmhouse I've got here represents Hougamon, but it looks nothing like Hougamon. <laughs> Then you know again if that if the people who are playing that are enjoying it, then that's absolutely fine. But it's it's always worth I think to have this discussion to say, well, there are other approaches. There's not just one one route to follow. Yeah, I know it's um, and I know that 
like it's like there's been said, you know, some people are more into reading the history, some are into making the terrain, some are into painting the figures, some are into playing the games. It's you choose which side of that hobby is the one that motivates you, you know. Some people are into competitions and stuff, you know. It's some people go on eBay, buy an army, take it to the club and try and beat all the friends of the people who'd rather you know, at a game other people would rather collect the figures, read the books and make try and make a historical um how many times you've seen people I'm gonna get a a scale, you know, of a particular army for a particular battle. Uh, I you know, it's Everybody's got different horses for different courses, I think. Yeah, it? as long as they keep as long as they keep buying things, the the, the manufacturers are happy. So, so do you think then that once you moved into writing historical books and became an official historian, and I'm, I say that in the in the nicest possible sense, in the fact that uh, you've got letters after your name to say you're a historian, you've written forty books, did you say? 15 of which are on the First World War. Do you think that has soured your enjoyment of the hobby or has it opened your eyes more? It's done both. It opens my eyes to it and it also, it, it, makes, you, it makes you critical of a lot of things because you just know, you, like I say, if somebody's, somebody's set up a terrain of a battle and they're having a great time, who am I to stand there and go, well, I walk the field and it's not like that. You know, it's it's something I know. It's a fact that I know, but it's it's not really fair to criticise him for it, is it? They put a well, lot of... they they might not thank you for it. Let's put it no, like no, that. but but I do have I do know that what they've put on there as a real representation isn't a real representation. But it's like we're saying it's it's all, it's war gaming, isn't it? It's not we're not reenacting stuff. We're, we're, we're trying to put on it. The, the whole process is really about you set up something and you, you collect the figures, you learn a bit about the history, you get on the table, and then you have an experience against your fr- friends trying to either outdo them or whatever. And this, can I mention something which I thought about, which um, um, it's called One and a Half Gaming, One and a Half Battles. It's something I've I thought heard of. of it. Well, you won't have, because I come up with names. Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> Tell me all about one and a half gaming, then, Andy. No, it's something I think that I'm, I'm trying to get my head around it, and it's something that my people might like an idea of. It's almost the traditional way to do a war game is is one person one side of the table, the other one's the other side of the table, yeah. And then you try and outdo the other person. What I know is, like in military circles, is that to train officers. Sometimes they say, "Look, here's a tactical here's a tactical problem. How are you going to solve it?" You get me? So you're not playing against a person. And the way I've sort of translated this, it's an alternative to head to head. And that's where you've got one side who are players, and the other one's like a game master, like a D and D style. So that means that the sort of game master can do hidden movement. But he's not trying to beat the other person. He's just making it work as it works. You get me? And then, um, so the players are given troops and an objective. And then you can use markers for hidden troops, which the game master moves around and there's dummies and that. And then he can do sort of hidden dice rolls because he's not actually trying to beat them. He's just trying to make a good game. 
Um, and surely you can then take that step forward into solo, you know, into a solo style. And I did get introduced that the idea to that through a, a board game called Carrier, which is about um, uh, Pacific War games, and it's almost like, um, you know, when you're moving across a table, it's like, well, you know, something's there, but is it actually just? Um, I'll tell you the best one I've done at the moment. It's for like in the jungle, you know, with uh, Americans and Japanese in the jungle. And you like have a load of blocks around the table and they represent something, but you don't know what until you get close to it. And it could either be a flock of birds or a, a light machine gun team. <laughs> but you don't really know as you move. It's like, well, I want to move, but oh, there's a sniper, right? I need to sort that out. But oh, it's just a wild animal. Do you get what I mean? So... So, so would it almost be a, a if if you were there with your friends a cooperative experience where uh, you're helping each other, but you've got a third person there who is almost like you say the games master, almost like a dungeon master in role playing games, who isn't against you, but is just putting the, the same challenges that that group of yeah units so, or men might have faced. Yeah. So another way of putting it is normally we have two players and sometimes a, a referee, right? What I'm saying is you have two players on one one or two players on one side and the other person is just operating the game. And you're you've been taken to take a village or something like that, and the other the other person's like, right, well you're moving, hang on a minute, you know, roll the dice, well, what's he doing? What's he doing? Yeah. But he's actually not not actually doing anything, you know? Could, yeah, it might just be causing panic. <laughs> that's right. And I'm just wondering whether people can take their existing rule sets. It's not a new it's not a new rule set. It's just a different way of looking at a rule set. Do you get me? So you could take something like bolt action, but one of the players is just like, I've got lots of hidden things here, and you're going to move into a into a village, but you don't know whether there's civilians in that building or whether it's a machine gun. You know, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, so you get that sort of fog of war experience far more. Than... Yeah, yes, and that's it. And then... The concept would, that I'm thinking of is you make it a nice short game and what you do is you swap sides so that you both get a go. Yeah, so so it's uh, you're both like a game master for half the evening. You can make it the same objective. So I've done this and then you do it, you know. And and almost um, the, the person who's actually playing doesn't particularly need to know the rules as such. He can just say what he wants to do. Yeah. And then right. the games master who would know the rules can say, yeah, well, you can move to here. And, and if you shoot, then I'll, I'll roll the dice. To yeah. see what happens. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you shoot, you roll the dice. So you can, I'm, I'm, I'm just taking sort of a military idea, a Dungeons and Dragons role-playing idea and trying to put it into a, you know, a historical thing. I'm trying to sort well, of cross, cross patch ideas, really. Yes. Yeah. That's, that sounds really interesting, actually, because, um, the fog of war thing is always something that, for me, uh, prevents immersion. Where if I set up on one side of the table and my friend's on the other, I can perfectly well see if he's going for a flank attack or if he's moved uh, a unit into a building. Then it's very difficult to get away from that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, an extension of that in the Second World War concept is that... Um... So as you're moving forward, you, you, you're told that you've seen some vehicles moving around in that village, but you don't know whether they're, you know, a couple of half-tracks or a couple of tanks. You know, it's like, I just know there's vehicles. In there. That's, that, to me, reading, reading about things and 
I'll I'll tell you where part of this idea comes from. One of my my thesis was on Normandy, okay, and I looked at the orders and the way that the orders used to come back was a, a regiment would to, would report every fifteen minutes to brigade, brigade every half hour to division, division every hour to corps, yeah, and it would say right the 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 regiment would say. I've got one battalion as advanced there has come under fire from a machine gun. We've seen some vehicles, but we're not sure what they are yet. The middle one's like, well, we're moving forward. There's not a lot of action. The one on the right sort of said, I've got a couple of Tiger tanks, but they're not really Tiger tanks because every tank's a Tiger, you know? And then you as a commander are like, well, what's right and what's wrong? But I'm thinking it'd be interesting to have a second party who knows what's going on, but they're like shuffling around the... the um, not the flames of war, but the fog of war, you get me? Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's a different ideas. It's there are ideas that I'd love to be able to write. I just don't um I don't know. Have, have you it'll... tried this out yet or is it are we just talking theory at the moment? I've tried it out on my own table, yeah. It's yeah. Um, I do I do um, what I do with um I get do you know the problem when you buy figures? By the time you've painted them, you've like run, run out of enthusiasm. <laughs> yes, you bought well, them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I do is, um, do you know these little? You know, you know the game Jenga. Well, I can buy a little Jenga tower for two, three quid. I spray them up in a colour, and then I label them. So I make my own labels, and I use those as counters until until I get my figures on the table. But you can also use them for hidden counters as well. So you're a pr- you're moving across the terrain and there's like 20 blocks, but you don't know whether those blocks, what they represent, you see. So, uh, go on. I think the uh, two fat lardies use, uh, I think they call them blinds in yeah, 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 I Ain't yeah. Been Shot Mom. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but I think only one or two of the of the tokens represent nothing, whereas everything else is. But I'm taking, um, I think I'm, I have seen some of that, and it's almost like, well, you, the, this, there's a block. It, it could be something, or it could not be something. I'm trying to take it that there is something, but you don't know what it is. You, you can see some men moving about, but is it a rifle patrol, or is it a machine gun? That's That was what I drew from reading the actual reports from the battlefield. And everybody's sort of anticipating it's more than what it is. It's the age-old thing. Every tank's a tiger. Well, it might not be, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Yeah. So yeah. that's just, that's the sort of things that um, used to worry people on the battlefield. So that's the sort of thing that should be worrying the player. Yes. Well, that that sounds like a really interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to finish it, it and um, <laughs> and I'm going to make me a million pounds. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you. I will talk again when I finish this. Show. I'll, I'll just take two percent commission on a million. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so with the writing side of things, then, Andy, uh, you've, I mean, forty books. That's a that's quite a body of work, isn't it? And um, yeah. are, are you working on anything at the moment? Well, what happened with books is uh, I was writing up to about two years ago, and um, <clears throat> I'll tell you a little bit about the publishing industry because it's exactly the same with the wargaming industry, in my view, is that, one, there's too much competition now. I mean, when we started wargaming, there was no online sort of computerized stuff, you know? 
So um, if you wanted to sit down with your mate and enjoy a game, it was you put things on the table. Now you can sit in your comfort of your bedroom and shoot people around the other side of the world, can't you? So that's a big that's a big thing to be against. Also, as we've stated, uh, and, it, and it is the hobby is in a good state. The thing is, it's it's getting saturated, in my view. So every which way you turn, somebody's doing things start to duplicate things. So this has this happens in in publishing is you know you got one book on the Battle of Somme. Uh, now there's 20 books on the Battle of Somme, but there's only the same number of people that want to read them. So, so your audience probably for wargaming hasn't grown much, but the number of options has grown hugely, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you bought out a set of successful wargames rules years ago, every club in the country was playing it. Now, now it's and every convention now it's. Um, you know, something new is coming out all the time, which is great in one respect, but there's only a limited pool of, res- of people wanting to do it. I, I can remember probably early 90s when Rapid Fire was the only set of World or Two rules that most people used. It was the, certainly the most commercial set of rules. Oh, I can um, think of another one that we used to use, WRG well, 1925 to 50. E- Yes, that that was there, but that that was out no. a lot earlier, wasn't yeah, it? And I don't, yeah. it didn't have the same sort of production values, did it? No, no, um, it was um, that was nineteen seventies style. It's a full body of text, wasn't it? I've got two copies yeah. of that. I've got a nineteen seventy three yeah. version, mm. and we well, see there, with... case an example that came out in the seventies, and then the next big rule set came out in the nineties. You know? Yeah, yeah. Twenty years between them, and it's uh, and some people are still using nineteen twenty-five to nineteen fifty. I've, I've got a downloaded copy that somebody's put. Um, it's still got some very. It's still got some useful things in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of my former guests, uh, um, who runs the heretical wargaming blog, he 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 plays them quite a lot. Were, I think they were written by veterans, weren't they? Right. Yeah. Well, Phil Bark was involved, certainly, yeah, yeah, and he yeah. was a veteran, wasn't he? And yeah, so. I think there's there's uh, a couple of other people that he knew that were involved in the development. But it, you're right in that um, when I'm talking about the sort of late '80s, early '90s, rapid fire was was everywhere. Fire and fury certainly grabbed a hold of every American Civil War battle uh, that you would see at the show, uh, and I think probably. Grand Manor was very still very popular at that point, and then perhaps uh, evolved into the General de Brigade series of rules by Dave Brown. But now it feels like there's a new set of rules for whichever period you're interested in will come out every other yeah. week, or the and, um, and also the figures to go with it as well. Yes, exactly, a new and range the of terrain, fig- you know. yeah. I, I still. Uh, I still can't believe when I see a new company producing 28 mil Napoleonics and they re- release a French line infantryman. Uh, and y- it, it may be that very, very nice. And, and I'm talking probably in the bigger scales here, but it may be very nice. But how different is that to the 20 other versions of the French Fusilier? Well, it's the same with books. Know. You know, it's the um, same with subject with books. I, t- I tell you one one thing in publishing is you know publishers have to keep producing new books because to keep in business you know and the other thing is that you know as it's been pointed out to me there's a lot of people are f- willing to write for free because for the kudos you know to say they've written 
which is one of the reasons I stopped doing it. <clears throat> People would turn up with an idea and they, they didn't want any money for doing it. And I'm like, everybody's everybody's entitled to an out an income from what they're doing. Publish there's a lot there's a few rich publishers out there. There's a lot of poor authors, I always say. <laughs> but but that War Games Vault is an example of that. Is that you know if you're interested in you know you mentioned Fire and Fury and there's Alter Freedom, they're both very nice sets of rules, very good. But you go onto something like War Games Vault and you put in American Civil War and there's you know twenty, thirty, you know. So everybody's having a go, aren't they? There's a lot of self-publishing. There's a lot of kicks, Kickstarters. What are they all about? <laughs> I've I've been bitten a couple of times by Kickstarters, but more in the science fiction fantasy genre. Right. Um, I've never I've, never done it. Yeah. So th- there's one in particular at the moment that I'm waiting for uh, that is two years late. So the company have had my money for three years probably now uh, because there's generally a twelve month turnaround on right. these things. So you can order it. It's almost like a you know. Spiv knocks on, a bloke knocks on your door, or somebody knocks on your door and says, I've "Got a great idea. Give me, give me some yeah. money, and, you, and I'll bring it back next year." Yeah. I'll be like, yeah, that is exactly what Kickstarter is. Uh, uh, there are many, many, many successful Kickstarters out there because it's often seen as a pre-ordering system or a way to support an artist or a, a manufacturer. But there are there are some very well-known instances where people have been burned and, and burned big style where they've invested two three four hundred pounds into a kickstarter that's never appeared and there is that risk you know that you you are aware that there's that risk but this comes back to the point where you were saying about um you but you buy some figures that's a show because it's it's the most exciting thing in the world to you and you're really keen for this period and you start painting the figures but by the time you finish painting the figures you've moved on to something else and with kickstarter it's the same so you might see a range of figures that are released only on kickstarter um and and you you splash out 100 pounds or whatever it is but then the figures don't arrive or the game doesn't arrive for 12 months by which time you've been through half a dozen other projects. And oh, if, for me, if it does, if, if it won't arrive within a week or two, I'm not interested. But <laughs> so, so those days of uh, please allow 28 days for delivery uh, and send a stamped address stamp, uh, stamped addressed envelope uh, for the catalogue. Uh, I mean that that's long gone, and thank goodness it has. I, I, I mean, in publishing, it's a similar thing that. Um, it's there's there's vanity publishing. That's where you can, as I say, it's, that's where you can publish anything you want, but it'll cost you. But then there's this sort of halfway house where it's like, we'll publish it, and if we make any money, then we'll give you some. So mm. it's, what it's doing, it's it's reducing the uh, the commitment to the publisher. You know, they're not giving you any money up front. They just if you sell it, then we'll give you some money, and if we don't, then you get nothing. So they've still got the costs of producing it, but. I don't know. It's, sorry. That's a, that's a risk, though, that they'll yeah. take, I guess, isn't it, on that basis? Yeah. That... But it's a, I mean, you know, it's it's a double-edged sword. The, the hobby, there's lots and lots to do. You've only got to go to Hamad and the other shows. There's so much going on. Um, it's just been diluted rather than half a dozen big things many years ago. 
which sort of stifled what we do. There's lots and lots of things nowadays. Not all of them good, but there are some good things out there. But again, you know, it's it's horses for courses. Everybody does what they want to do. Do you, th- so. do you think we're in a good place at the minute with a hobby? I, I do. If you think we've had two years where people haven't been able to play, you know, and um, they've stuck at it. You know, we got to, we, we, I met you at Hammerhead and it was like, <laughs> it was like the pandemic had never happened. Um, you know, all those people that they were, <laughs> well, I don't know what everybody's situation was in pandemic. I, 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 I worked through it, but you know, I had a lot of spare time and, um, a lot of people had time and they got stuck into projects. I used to see that on social media, you know, painting this and doing that. Can't wait to get back to it. So yeah, there's, there's lots of, and the good thing about the hobby is you can try before you buy on YouTube with everything nowadays. Um, there's anything you want, you can, you can buy into at any scale, really, you know, you got, I mean, you would, the one I was listening to recently, um, the two mil strength and honor, you know, you know, there's that, the six mil with, uh, ultra free, the likes of ultra freedom. There's, um, there's backers bringing out new stuff. There's Adler, then you've got 10 mil Pendragon and others, uh, 15s. There's not as many 15s nowadays. Um, I know because I always look for them, but but you know there's a there's loads of 28 mil out there as well, isn't there? Metal, there's metal. So there's lots and lots and lots of stuff out there. We can all do exactly what we want with it, and loads of terrain as well. Yes, yeah. If you're prepared to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I um I made myself a Wild West town for uh, for my grandson, you know. And what I did was I got a I printed off. I, I saw those lovely little wooden buildings uh, or MDF buildings that are a lot of money. Yeah. And um, I like my grandson that much, but I'm not spending that much money. <laughs> um, There's a limit. There was a risk that he wasn't bothered. So I, right. actually, I actually bought PDFs of printed buildings, print them out, and I get a foam board and I spray glue them on and then cut them and super glue it together. And I made something like 30 40 buildings for about 50 quid but you know that you wouldn't take them to a, a show but they're all right on my table you know yeah exactly and for how often you might play that game yeah exactly yeah 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 it it's this is something i think i've realized in probably too late in my gaming journey that um i can th- there are some beautiful buildings out there and lots of scenery but a lot of the stuff you can make yourself to a fairly decent standard for not very much money. Um, and buildings, particularly in six mil, uh, there's lots of places where you can print, print buildings off. Uh, and I think little wars TV, actually, I've got all of the well-known buildings from the American civil war available as a download, uh, in, in six mil. So stick it to some card and, You've got the Lutheran Seminary, you've got the Cemetery Gatehouse, you've got um, uh, the houses from the Bull Run Battlefield, or you've got Dunker Church. Uh, so, uh, and for how often you're going to use them, um, I, th- I think that's quite a good economical route to go, and it's something I'm looking up very I think uh, more them, and more. I think they brought them all out after I bought the buildings from Leaven Buildings. Ah, but the Leaven Buildings are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I've well, got well, stacks of 11 miniatures oh, yeah. buildings. So, um, I mean, 
one of the things I put together was six, we're, this is six mil, isn't it? It's uh, God's own scale. So it is. Um, I was going to. We're talking about terrain. I, I I make a lot of my own terrain. So right. some people know these, and they're not all my ideas because I've stolen some off the internet. I just thought a little five minute run through of how I make my terrain. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Because I'm always uh, keen to make my own scenery, but generally uh, I, I sort of give in and end up buying <laughs> stuff. So if, if you've got some tips for us in God's yeah, scale, I mean, that'd be great. Most of my stuff, I've I've I spend a lot of time looking through um, uh, like DIY and sort of model shops. You know, things like um, the works and Wilco's and stuff like that. So, uh, so for me, if I'm going to make walls. I get a lolly stick. I use lolly sticks a lot. And uh, I get a pan scrubber. I cut the pan scrubber into the sort of about well, six mil light and uh, glue it on and then I paint it either grey or brown and at a distance it looks like a stone wall. Because um, if you're building stone walls in six mil, I built, I, I built walls for three years myself, dry stone walling. So when you stand back at uh, the three, you know, the three foot rule, you don't see lots of little pebbles stacked up. It's just it's just like something that's a little bit rough, you see. So it's just a pan scrubber strip painted grey or brown according to whether you want sandstone or, or you know, old slate or something. I've seen it used for um, hedging. Now I'm coming up for hedging. For don't jump in. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut that bit out. <laughs> yeah. So with hedges, it's exactly the same, except you paint them, you, you paint them green. Right. And then I, then I use... Um, you know, like a railway scatter on it. Yes. Model railway scatter. I use that. Alternatively for hedges, a slight, a bit more expensive way is you get your lolly stick and I use. Have you, do you know what I mean by clump foliage? Yes, I do. Yeah, so, I've got a box all behind me. Yeah, I get that from uh, a model railway supplier, so I I use that. Now woods. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> this Why is an you, interesting one. Yeah, we're my woods. Um, I don't go for the hollow, hollowed out woods. I go for, well, this is what I do for a wood. I get doormat. Imagine just a normal doormat, right? I cut out whatever shape I want. On top of it, I stick a piece of pan scrubber, which is just maybe a quarter of an inch, half an inch, slightly bigger. So you get like that over overhang look. And then I stick clump foliage over the top of it. Now, if I want to go a slightly deeper wood, I do a second layer without the door. So I do a second layer of pan scrubber with clump foliage. So you're always stacking it up. So you can have different sizes and different heights. Yeah. Does that all make sense? It does make sense. I'm picturing it now, actually. Yeah. But it's, I just get like, you know, these rubberized doormats. That are, they're, they're usually three or four quid for about three foot by two foot. And they do actually lay over things, you know, like hills. Um, now, if I'm going to make a small fortification, <clears throat> I'm thinking American Civil War. It's like a what what I do is I get a small twig or a cocktail stick on a lolly stick, and then just I use uh, it's called DAS modeling clay. So that just sort of shoving to any cracks. In That's it. air hardening clay, isn't it? Yeah, it's great to yeah. have that around. It's useful for anything really. Yeah. And if I'm using larger fortifications, you know, like a for like a, a redoubt, I just use a hardboard base and I use cocktail sticks and I put down lollies as a lolly sticks, you know, like as as a timber base. 
so that you'd roll your guns on too and then I use modeling clay and then paint it up um roads i'm uh this is a little wars tv idea it's it's you were using your brown you know your bath sealant oh yeah the caulking yeah 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 going to a, a shop in england that's for caulking they've got no idea what you're on about no <laughs> <laughs> so yeah you just now uh, i've seen that but i haven't tried it so your testimony oh, okay. to the fact it works yeah. yes it's it's messy but yeah what you do is you get uh baking paper so it doesn't stick to your table and strip the varnish off your table uh and you just literally squeeze it out and then you get a piece of wood and you just it doesn't really matter how rough it is when you do it because once it's dry you pull off the paper and then trim the edges it's something that you have a bit of an experiment with that's what it's all about this thing is experimenting have a go it doesn't cost you a lot and then you sit back and you think well that works it doesn't work and also their idea for rivers, I, I think it's their ideas. I use clear bath sealant. And um, what I do is into strips, trim it, and then I paint it underneath blue. I mean, you know, they're not they're not show standard, but I sp particularly like one of the clubs I go to around here, it's, you know, they've got a club night. They want loads of terrain, don't they? So it's like if you've got a club and it's like you just want boxes of stuff that people can throw on the table, it's... Really, right now, ploughed fields. I use um, brown ribbed doormats. Okay, and if you want to turn them into like crop fields, you just put clump foliage in the in the ribs, so it looks like you know like potato plants or something like that. And this could be used at 15 mil as well. Hay fields. Wow, you got the brush type doormats. Yeah. Sort the you, sort of uh, orangey brownish. Yeah, there, it's yeah. A, it's almost like a brush, but about half yeah. inch high. Yeah, so I think it's that. called core, isn't it? Core, C O I R. And you're a lot more uh, educated than I am. So. Well, I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> school of hard knocks I went to, well, the the University is, of Life. The thing is, I've never actually used a doormat as a doormat, but I bought plenty from. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's quite a few wargamers out there that yeah. have bought plenty of doormats but never used it as a doormat. Yeah. Now, if you want the crushed hay version, you know, with flattened hay. Yeah. Flower basket liners. Oh, uh, okay. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they uh, it just looks like hay that's been crushed. So, And then for buildings, uh, I mean, the cheap way I would do for buildings is, is try and just... You can pick all sorts of brickwork off, you know, off the internet, pictures. And then cheap printouts, stick it on foam board and spray glue it. Buildings is a difficult one unless you're... Uh, you do, I've never got into 3D printing because it, it's like I've got thousands of figures. Why do I want thousands more? <laughs> I've got thousands I've got to play with. I don't play with, so I don't need many more to work. So that's just some ideas. Um, that's what I use, really. I like, I like that. Yes, I'll certainly be trying the uh, the the woods technique. Um, uh -huh. I've seen that where uh, people. Uh, I think Little Wars TV did one, didn't they? Where they use some foam board and put yeah. the clump foliage on top, and then they. Yeah. Uh, I think they hold it up with some toothpicks or something. Yeah, they? I just. Um, I. I, I like the I like the top look. All I do is I just put the figures on top. That's all. I don't need to. If I'm going to hide them, I just have them off table. Because otherwise, you put them under a wood and then you put your hand on it and you just 
Oh <laughs> yes, it gets, yeah, it just gets a bit, you know, practical. I like things to be practical, but uh, yeah, that's some of the ideas. I think the only things I did try to make fencing, you know, uh, American Civil War fencing that, you know, that split log thing, and it it um, it was fabulous. I made it all in uh, cocktail sticks, but it probably cost me more in glue to make it than what to buy a commercially <laughs> one. So. Yeah, and it's it's, a, it's quite laborious, isn't it? I've tr- I've tried that method myself. And, yeah, yeah. Um, one one interesting thing actually, uh, Aaron from Project Wargaming uh, in the states, he is uh, hugely into three D printing, and uh, printed me some off and sent me some over uh, probably eighteen months ago now actually, mm-hmm. and they're the best thing I've ever seen uh, to represent that sort of the zigzag type fencing. That yeah, you, I, you I typically saw. I've got some metal ones from Bacchus. So. Yeah, yeah, I haven't, I haven't indulged myself with the Bacchus ones yet, but uh, Aaron gave me several feet worth of his three oh, cool. printed. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I've I put that to good use. But uh, you see, I, like I, you, like you, I don't need a three D printer. <laughs> no, God, no. It's, um, I'm bad enough with a two D printer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, it's something else from it that would fry my brain, I'm sure, despite yeah. what everybody listening to this will be saying, which is it's dead easy. And... Oh, no, sure. Again, it's, you know, I've got a seller full of figures, so I, I don't want to... What do you need sell. it? Yeah, well, what do you need it for? Yeah, I've got all sorts. So, yeah, you were, um, you asked about what I'm working on at the moment with writing. Um, my... I have got a couple of projects that are totally non-wargaming related, so we don't need to talk about them. They're just well, I lived in Spain, so it's to do with tourism, but um, so it's nothing to do with what we're doing. Because I do write about other things. I do. I have written about social history and that. So, um, the, what I'm working on at the moment is American Civil War is my big thing. It has been for a few months because um, I didn't realise what a huge conflict it was. <laughs> It's you often hear about Gettysburg. You often hear about Antietam or Sharpsburg. It's the two names for it. But I mean, I've got a book that I bought when I went to uh, America, and it's got 250 battlefields, and that's just the big ones. So, but we don't see that much of those in the wargaming world. I think sometimes in wargaming, there's too much focus on the big famous battles. Yes, there's probably half a dozen, isn't there? I think any any Civil War buff could reel off, which yeah. are, are the big the big ones. But those smaller skirmishes or regimental size battles. Well, I'm talking divisional of... size battles, you know. It's right. Same. Okay. And yeah. and the thing is, they would be ideal for a six by four table. Yeah. But everybody wants to get Gettysburg on their six by four. Everybody <laughs> everybody wants Gettysburg on the dining room table, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah. And, yeah. and these... me included. Yeah, but the more I read about Gettysburg, that it's atypical to the sort of fighting that went on. You know, it's just a lot. A lot of fighting was in in woodland. A lot of it was there was forty temporary fortification. It's almost like a sort of preamble to the First World War. As soon as you stop, you dig in. Um, there's a lot of it. A lot of the battles are fought in smoke or in dawn or at dusk. You know. It's not. It's you rarely see more than a hundred yards. So it's the more it's it's great. That's the great thing about history and reading. The more you read about it, the more you sort of open your eyes to other projects. You know. Uh, but I do find that in some war games rules, 
they, you know, when you get a war games rule set and you say there's scenarios included and they're just not practical for two people at home. Yeah, I, I was always amazed in the uh, Fire and Fury original rule book. You've got Gettysburg yeah. on a right, twelve yeah. foot by six table, which yeah. Uh, if, if Ken, you're listening, I, I know you've got a twelve by six, but I, I haven't. So yeah. I, is it, uh, I could little, never play that. Is it what Little Wars TV call your entry point? You know, it's yeah. It's um, how how big a mortgage you need to get started in this hobby. You know, it's uh, but you don't. But it's almost like if. It's almost like they need to. I don't know. It's when people put out a set of rules to me, they should be banging out scenarios free all the time. You know, it's not hard to to get translate a scenario from a a decent book. If you've got a book with which has the terrain and you've got Google Maps and all that, you know. I think Little Wars are very good at this. Actually, they yeah, um, yeah, yeah. they generally always get scenarios or free scenarios out. Yeah. Uh, for whatever rule set they're they're doing. So the, their American War of Independence one, uh, Live Free or Die at the yeah. moment is is gripping me. Um, and there's, I think there's a dozen scenarios out for yeah. that already. So. Well, it's just you know I know I've seen I've look, I flick through the rule books you get to the back and it's. There's a lot of real army lists, and then there's like, oh, there's a scenario to get you going. Like, yeah. Okay. It's, I don't know. It's, if they've got so, one, so, sorry. So, so are, you, are you writing a book on the Civil War at the moment? I'm researching one. Whether I'm writing it or not is it? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's a different thing, right? Right. Well, um, my thing is commanders. Okay. Command and leadership. Command is the ability to do your job so that others can do theirs better. That's as in being able to run an effective headquarters. And then leaders are the ones that uh, inspire others to do their, to do what they should do better. And it's very rare that you get somebody who's a good commander, very organized, and somebody who's a leader who's like, come on, let's go for it. But um, I'm looking, I've got something like, um, I shall say this once, I shall say this only once, very quickly. Um, divisional level. Anybody who served in a di- infantry served in a divisional level, that's infantry or cavalry division in the American Civil War. I'm looking at their wartime biography, and I've got 400 chaps. Okay. Of which you could probably name about six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, I'm looking at where they came from, what they did in battles, where they got sacked. They are often they're falling out, they're getting drunk, they're shooting each other. It's 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 a group of guys that are in very difficult times. And I don't think we emphasise enough on generals in war games. As in, you know, some rules do. But overall, I don't, uh, you know, I think this should more. I've, I've discovered in my time in research is that, that good generals can certainly flip how a battle goes, you know. Yes. And um, I think Little War, uh, sorry, Ultra Freedom does that very well because um, yeah. uh, General Lee at Gettysburg isn't generally at Second Manassas or yeah. uh, at Antietam. Right. So, um the, the rules actually reflect that, don't they? It's not a standard characteristic for General Lee. Um, it's it's reflective of that of him his on the performance day, performance on the day. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, his his chain of command is represented as well. So yes. It's to me that's one of the in my, in my in what I try and come up with. It's 
It's the thing I like to include the most is command and leadership. Yeah. And um, the actual micromanaging, the micro shuffling, I'm, I try and steer clear off. <laughs> that might be the that might be the subtitle of this episode: micro shuffling. I love that phrase, Andy. <laughs> but how many times have you? Uh, I know you, exactly what it means. You watch. Uh, <laughs> have you ever stood at a demonstration? You know, a, a convention and stood next to a table for like half an hour, and it's like I don't know what's happening. There's nothing happening. He's moved, he's moved a few inches and there's been lots of dice rolling, but I don't really know what's going on. And that's not fun, is it? To me, it's not fun. Not as a bystander, no. And um, I may have talked about this before, but I think there, I think there are several categories of demonstration game that you will see at shows. And at one end, it will be a group of people or a club who've just taken the advantage that they can play on a bigger table than normal uh, and they'll play the game that they would have played at the club on a Friday night but and not if, interested in engaging with the... Yeah, but the we do have public. to remember people like that in turn up, it wouldn't be much of a convention either. <laughs> no, no, and that's true. And there's still the eye candy of, of being able to look at what they're doing. I understand that. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got those people who will fully engage with the audience to explain what's going on, what the rules are, where the figures are from, what's happening on the table. Um, so, and, and everything in between. And you're right, without people turning up and making the effort to put a game on for others to see, then it's going to be a pretty short day out at the show, isn't it? Because once you've bought what you need, then you're going home. But, uh, yes, yeah, so it, it, it's horses for courses, as we've said before. Uh, Andy, we've, uh, we've struck over the two-hour mark which is going to make this the longest episode for some time. And it's been, it's been, it's been absolutely great to uh, hear your background and your, your thoughts on the hobby. And I suspect we could probably go on for another two hours um, yeah. without too much trouble. Yeah. I'd have to, I'd have to sit down and have a think. Hopefully that's all come out. All right. I mean, microphone moved off for a bit for a while. So, Oh no, no, that's fine. We'll, we'll sort that out in post-production. Um, for any new guest onto the show, Andy, there's two requests that I make before I let you go. Uh, the first is that you agree to come back on at some point in the future to have another chat. Yeah, and I think before I do, though, I need to complete one of my wizard sets of rules, don't I? I've got something to, <laughs> so I've got something to sell. <laughs> no, well, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so if you've got something to sell, even even better. Because no, I think I, I what I need love... to do is, is I need to actually finish developing what I'm trying to do so I can then explain it better. Okay. Well, I think you've done a pretty good job, to be honest. And mm. um, it's uh, uh, the, I do use the podcast from time to time to help people promote whatever they're selling. Well, but yeah. also, but also, it's it's really good just to have a general chat mm. about can where you, we are in the hobby. Can we mention my podcast? We absolutely can. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> let's so, give it. A, let's give it a plug. It's called British Army. 1914-1918. It covers all aspects of the British Army about organisation, life in the army, weapons. And then I also cover the campaigns. There's another section I've been doing on divisional histories. So I'm more aimed at um, the history side of people. I, I haven't done any for a couple of months because after a year I hit a brick wall of what do I talk about? But um, I will get back to it. They're, uh, they're on... Um, Spotify, but uh, yeah, 
Highly recommended. I've listened, I think, to most of them actually. But okay, you know, do you know, it's, it, I started it as um, as an antidote to lockdown. So I I took two of my books and I basically turned them into podcasts. Really. So the, the bit I'm going to look at next is about touring. You know, maybe I'm going to discuss uh, doing um, audio tours. You know, so if you're going if you're going away somewhere like to to the battlefields, it's like a ten minute audio tour. You need to go here, there, and and then it explain a little bit. So, not not in, not in depth, but just enough to get people from A to B and resources and that. Yeah. So you've asked one question. What's the second one? The second one, Andy, and I hope I aren't uh, throwing a low ball to here because I can't think if I've mentioned it to you in well, the preparation. No, you but haven't. The, but I have listened to the podcast. So ah, so you know it. what's coming. You think, know what's coming. I think I have. It's a, it's a book for the God's Own Scale Virtual Library. Now, uh, it, it can be one book, it can be several books, uh, and it can be uh, one of your own. Um, as an author, I've, I've had, I think you're the, possibly the third author I've had on the podcast now, so uh, absolutely you can put one on there. But uh, if you've got something for us, that would be great. Oh, you mean one of my books? You mean well, no, no, it can be anything. It can be what? anything on military history or wargaming, but oh, wow. you can include one of your own books if you wish. <laughs> I've got seven full bookcases, so blimey. <laughs> just, just turn around and pick one randomly off the shelf. It's all right, they're upstairs, <laughs> I can't do that. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> it's, it's one to recommend to God's Own Scale listeners, and well, one it of... will sit proudly on the shelves. Okay, the well, one, I, one of the last ones I wrote is called The Learning Process. And um, it showed how the British Expeditionary Force in, on the Western Front in the First World War, it showed how it learnt its business of war, but it, how it tried different things, how they some failed. It's all about learning. Um, so it's called The Learning Process by Helian. And I'm looking at all the nitty-gritty about how people are actually in the firing line they're trying to work out the best way to achieve what they're trying to do. It is First World War, though, but that was my take on on. Um... Well, it's what it's it's joint first favourite era of mine, along with the American Civil War. So uh, I'm in good company. Um, good. When, good. Uh, but seriously, I'm. Uh, I think I bought American Civil War. I think this is the whole problem with Amazon. As soon as I go, I want a book on. I want a book on Second Manassas. I've got one coming now. It's like I didn't even have to talk myself out of it. <laughs> Clicked and got into it. Well, literally just before we started chatting, um, yeah. I was scanning for Spanish Civil War books because that's that's a conflict that's uh, quite interesting to me at the moment. I've been oh. collecting several books on that. Well, um, I lived in Spain, didn't I? So I got, I got very into the Civil War when I was there and... Uh, I, it's a very difficult conflict to get into. I had quite a lot of Spanish language books. I used to read them to learn Spanish. If you're going to read a book, read some. Of, I, they were like picture books, but you know when you got a lot of pictures and a lot of sort of captions, it, was, it got me into reading Spanish. You see, so yeah, Viva la Quinta Brigada and all that. Yeah. Well, uh, I may need you as a translator <laughs> at some point. No, ser- seriously, if you want to know about the Civil War, ch- have a chat to me because yes. uh, I might. I might be able to put you onto stuff. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, right, I think that probably uh, wraps up the interview, 
then, Andy, uh, other than for me to thank you very much for your patience, first of all, in uh, actually getting this recording done, and also thank you for your time. That's cool. uh, Very nice talking to you. No, it's been a great chat. We had a real good chat at uh, Hammerhead, didn't we? And I I suspect we may see each other at Partizan, maybe. Is that uh, about a month's time? 22nd of May. Okay, cool. I, I, um, I'm sure there'll be something I need to buy by then. <laughs> yes, and if not, the Joy of Six. Yeah, yeah. I've I've asked Peter if he, if if I could volunteer, and he said yes. I, I only live, I literally a tram ride away, and I, I used to work at Fiasco, so yeah. And I, I know that um, from the early hours of getting all the traders in before opening the doors, it can be a bit uh, frantic. Yes. I'm sure and, every uh, every pair of hands will uh, be great. Yeah, it'd be nice. As I say, he's always been very he's been very helpful and, and kind to me over the years. So it'd be nice yeah. to give somebody back, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully it works out. All yes, right. I'm sure. Uh, okay then. So uh, until next time, Andy. Thanks very much for your time. Good luck with everything that you're involved yeah. with with you the, too. the keep research. Up the, keep up the casting. Yes, <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, welcome back to God's Own Scale Studios. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Andy as much as I did. He certainly ploughs his own furrow in the hobby, and it goes to show that there is no one true way of participating in what I think is the greatest hobby going. Speaking of hobby, mine has been on a bit of a back burner uh, for the last two or three weeks for the reasons mentioned in the intro. But having said that, I have picked up the brushes again these last few days and have now completed the Nationalist Forces for my Harama project, save for a couple of headquarter bases. And the Republicans are up next, but I don't think it'll be too long before I'm ready to give them a run out, uh, probably down at the club, and I'll report back with how that goes. I've also painted up the 1st British Battalion, I think it's the 64th foot, for my new 10mm War of Independence project, with the ultimate aim of playing Germantown, but visiting a few of the smaller battles along the way. Uh, one of these will be Hopkirk's Hill, as seen on the Little Wars Patreon channel, where Greg and Josh played out the whole battle on camera, and very good it was too, if you are a Little War Patreon. Check it out. If you're not a patron, well, sign up and watch it. I think it's a great uh, report, battle report, uh, where you can see all the dice rolling and the players making the decisions as they move the figures around. And it shows off the live free or die uh, rules very well. Somehow, I seem to have got several 10mm projects on the go all at once. But that's not to say my 6mm hobby has been pushed to one side. Oh no, I'm slowly plugging away at my Pony Wars project, painting up US Cavalry and Lakota Sioux. They are some of the most gorgeous figures I've seen out of Bacchus. Uh, they are simply exquisite little miniature representations of the 
cavalry and Sioux that you will see in any of the John Ford westerns or the classic uh, westerns that you will see uh, on a Saturday afternoon, well, back in the day. I imagine uh, that this will be for a game next year now. Uh, there's just so much to paint. 600 um, Sioux uh, Indians to start with, so I think that will probably be next year realistically. My plans for this 6mm Waterloo 100 Days project are waxing and waning, uh, but I've become increasingly fascinated by DBN, which is obviously the DBA uh, version, uh, sorry, the Napoleonic version of DBA, as a way to fight the battle on a smaller table. I've been watching quite a few of the YouTube videos that Alex has been putting out on the DBN channel and thinking how I might best replicate what he does. Uh, using the DPN rules for the 100 days and indeed for some of the other large water, uh, Napoleonic battles. Uh, but this is something that's bubbling away on the back burners for now and I'll no doubt return to it at some point in the near future. And the same can be said for my Blenheim ambitions. I've long wanted to refight Blenheim using something like Twilight of the Sun King but I've recently come across um, Matt Bradley from the excellent Pushing Tin blog, who has adopted the bloody big battle rules from Chris Pierce to fight the battle. And I'm hoping to get Matt onto the show in the near future to talk about this and his other hobby activities. On top of this, uh, and having had to cancel a couple of weeks ago, uh, at the Stoke Club we're planning on playing the Ultra Freedom scenario for Second Manassas which should be an interesting challenge for the Union going up against that great confederate triumvirate of Lee, Jackson and Longstreet. I'll report back on how that goes in a future episode. I'll be at Partisan in May, uh, maybe even with a God's Own Scale t-shirt, who knows. So if you do see me, please say hi and uh, let me know uh, how your hobby's going, how much you've spent at the show and any future plans. I'll no doubt be hovering around either the Bacchus or Pendraken stands uh, for the most part, parting with my hard-earned cash. Finally, a shout-out to the Patreons who keep the lights on at God's Own Scale Towers. We've lost quite a few over the last two or three months, actually, but um, I'm still grateful to everybody that's ever contributed to God's Own Scale Patreon those that continue to do so and those who have done so in the past uh, because in all honesty you get very little out of me for your investment I do keep intending to do some more live streams but have failed to do so generally I will endeavour to do better on this in the future I keep saying this and then don't do it but I, I will keep trying and plugging away and I'm tentatively thinking about doing one next Saturday which will be Saturday the 30th of May probably around the 9pm British summertime slot um, and it'll just be a paint and chat uh, and if you've got any questions throw them at me uh, it'd be nice to have you along uh, there'll be more about that on the Patreon page hopefully in the next few days if you would like to support the show for very little in return please visit the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash God's Own Scale or contact me uh, on the Twitters at God's Own Scale. Uh, also, the God's Own Scale Facebook group continues to grow 
and there's a nice little community gathering there for you to share ideas and pictures of your hobby and games and thoughts etc etc but okay that's enough of me for now you don't need to hear me waffling on one second longer so thanks for listening as always stay safe play nice and keep talking about six the birthday went away to do his bit the other day. With the smile on his lips and his left ten and pips upon his shoulder, bright and gay. As the train moved out, he said, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to all, shouting out these pathetic words. Goodbye. Goodbye, oh, I'm a dear baby dear from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know, I know, I'll be bigger than every dose of cry. Don't cry, there's a silver lining in the sky. Oh, 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 sing, cheerio, oh, chin, chin, na, boo, toogaloo, goodbye. Concert down at Kew, some convalescents dressed in blue. And to hear Lady Lee, who had turned 83, sing all the old, old songs she knew. Then she made a speech and said, I look upon you boys with pride. And for what you've done, I'm going to kiss each one. Then they all grabbed their sticks and cried. Goodbye. Bye.